0: Hello my friends, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek um, for the first episode of season two of the podcast. Um, Today's episode we're going to be exploring um, just how phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is shaping up so far. Um, There will be some spoilers um, for the most recent content. Um, I will be, be discussions of spoilers for WandaVision and um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier however any spoilers relating to the final episode of Loki or Black Widow will be explicitly marked so strap in and enjoy now obviously as uh, you may be aware With the current worldwide situation of uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, um, that has had an effect on multiple uh, film and television franchises, um, how things were filmed, uh, how things have been released. Obviously, um, the output from Marvel Studios has been affected by that as well. Now... The way it's affected the Marvel Universe is that several films which would have been released by now have been pushed back and have only started being released. Um, Black Widow um, was meant to release sometime last year, if I remember rightly. Um, February last year, maybe even May last year. It was meant to be the first big release after um, Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home. And obviously it's been pushed back now so that it only just released uh, last week. Um, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, as well as being released to cinemas, it's also getting the premier access release on Disney+. Plus which was uh, something that a lot of film studios are doing. They are doing some sort of release to whatever streaming service they own. Now, sometimes this involves a charge, like with Disney Plus's Premier Access. Other times it doesn't. For example, with um, a lot of the output from uh, Warner Brothers, which has gone straight to HBO Max in America um, for free obviously this is contentious with a a lot of filmmakers, a lot of production people. Kevin Feige, the um, overall director of the MCU, has had some negative things to say about this choice um, regarding Black Widow. However, he is also glad that Black Widow is making it to cinemas as well, and it doesn't seem to have hurt Black Widow as as a series. It's it's done very, very well. Um, so not as a series, sorry, as a film, as a release. It's it's done very well. Apparently, it's been the most successful film release um, since Rise of Skywalker at the end of 2019. Um, I th- uh, according to some reports, I think it's actually been more successful. Um, obviously, a large part of that is due to the coronavirus pandemic, but, you know, that that's... Those very solid numbers. I mean... There is a market for the Marvel Cinematic Universe still. The other thing with Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it's moved not just to films. There are now streaming uh, series on Disney+. Um, And unlike the previous Marvel television shows, such as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Daredevil, um, Cloak and Dagger, etc., um, which were all produced by Marvel Television, which is still in-house at the Disney Corporation. The current shows are all being produced by Marvel Studios, which means they are being overseen by the Marvel Studios team, and they're being developed sort of separate from the rest of the Disney Corporation. I, th- I did cover some of this in my Season 1 episode about the MCU, and the divisions between Kevin Feige and Art Perlmutter. So, yeah, feel free to go back to that episode if you want to uh, want to understand more detail of that, or you could easily find a summary online. The basic gist was there was a division between the head of Disney at the time and Kevin Feige over the direction the MCU was taking, uh, and it resulted in um, certain aspects of Disney who were just like, well, Kevin Feige knows what he's doing, he's making his money let's let him do what he wants, and they allowed Marvel Studios to separate from the rest of Marvel. So yeah, Kevin uh, Kevin Feige's Marvel Studios is now essentially its own thing, its own studio, its own production company as part of Disney, and this is one reason for their continued success. So obviously, they are in a similar manner to Lucasfilm with The Mandalorian, they are producing their own series for Disney Plus for the streaming service. Now, again, the, the order there was shuffled around. Um, the first series that was meant to release was Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which was due to release uh autumn of last year. That was pushed back because when the coronavirus pandemic hit there was still principal shooting and some reshoots that needed to be done on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. However, WandaVision, which then became the first series, had wrapped principal photography. I don't think they were able to do some of the reshoots they had planned, um, which means that certain characters maybe don't have as much of an impact in the finale as was originally designed. Um, But I'll get to that when I go more in depth with WandaVision. Um, So all that was necessary was um, computer effects work and special effects, visual effects like that. Um, There's been a lot of success recently with a lot of television series doing visual effects from home um, or working remotely. Um, The most prominent example was last year... With the release of season three of Star Trek Discovery. Um, the majority of which had its visual effects done from home. Working remotely. And the visual effects and that are on par with previous seasons of Star Trek Discovery. And most other productions. So it, it clearly didn't affect it. The same was true of WandaVision. They finished the visual effects at home. And it... As a result, one division was the first one to release. It released uh, in January, I believe it was this year, January February time. Since then, we've also had uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier um, across, uh, I believe it was March and April. Um, maybe it was a bit later, was April May, and Loki, which uh, wrapped its final episode this week. Um, and yeah, I will go. In Depth in all of them, as well as Black Widow, as we continue, so yes, um as I said earlier, I will mark clear spoilers for each thing um but first, I'm going to discuss one division I'm going to discuss it r- with spoilers um if you haven't seen all of one division or if you don't care about uh, or if you do care about spoilers um then please feel free to pause this podcast, watch it. I'd, I'd heartily recommend it. If you don't care about spoilers, if you gave up on WandaVision, if it wasn't particularly your thing for whatever reason, then uh, I will be discussing it. It is several months old now. I think the moratorium on spoilers has passed. So, uh, yeah, let's discuss Division. So, the first thing, I suppose, is to explain what WandaVision is, which is a bit of a trickier, uh, a bit easier said than done, shall we say. Um, WandaVision had, it, it released weekly, it's nine episodes long, however the first two episodes released at once, and I think that's a very good thing, because of how those first two episodes work um i'd argue that the the main plot of One Division doesn't truly start to become apparent until the end of the third episode and quite possibly the the duration of the fourth episode um for reasons i'll explain in a minute basically One Division as it starts starts in media res by which i mean the it is straight into the the story And you are dropped in at the same point of the characters. So, and then everything is explained to you at a later portion of the events. So, when it starts, we are presented with a black and white 1950s style sitcom. In a similar sort of style as, for example, The Dick Van Dyke Show. Um, Although the one it made me think of more than anything... Um, was bewitched. Very, very early bewitched. I understand bewitched was one that came later on, but very sort of similar things that I was thinking in my head. And But this sitcom it, it's presented exactly in the same way as a 1950 sitcom. There is a, a studio audience laughing along with events. Um, there is a standard sitcom style plot of um, the, the newly wedded couple who have a, a misunderstanding. There's a nosy neighbour, there's the boss coming over for dinner, which turns out to be what the main event is um, that they were confused by. Um, however, the miscommunication leads the wife to believe it's their anniversary and she dresses provocatively, which she then has to deal with in front of you know her husband's boss. The only thing is, the newly wedded couple are Wanda Maximoff and the Vision from the main Marvel Universe of films. With their powers intact, um, however, they seem to be deliberately hiding their powers from the people around them. Um, they're perfectly open with their powers in front of each other, and Vision with his traditional appearance, um, which he hides to go to work and to interact with other people and Wanda with her magic, which uh, is is done in a very, again, 1950s style. It's done with the special effects of the time. Things look cartoony, and, um, you know, it, it's just... You can see the strings on things going through the air. It's very, very clever. Now, it's a very bizarre start. It's very, very, very unlike anything... That's in the MCU so far. Even the aspect ratio matches the old 1950s TV shows. It's not in the widescreen format that the rest of the MCU is, and I think that's it. I think it's really, really good. It's a very, very good sitcom as as an actual episode of a, a 1950s style sitcom. It's clearly made with a lot of love to the sitcom genre and especially the sitcoms of that era. It works very, very well as a sitcom. It's it's very funny, it's a very standard sitcom plot, but the characters are interesting, it's really well done. But it stars two Avengers, and that's the mystery of it. And that mystery becomes more apparent towards the end of the episode when events take a more sinister turn Um, when the boss starts to choke on his meal and as Wanda and Vision are completely frozen uh, like paralysed almost by fear his wife says you know stop it, stop it Wanda over and over again and it becomes more urgent, more pleading more desperate, and the camera angles change, and it looks more sinister, and it's close-up, so it's all still done in black and white, but it's not presented as a sitcom anymore, and that's the mystery, and then that continues through to the second episode, the second episode by now is a 1960s sitcom, again, much more like um, the sort of thing you'd see on Bewitched, um, especially Bewitched. Um, also more sort of I Dream of genie towards the end as well. Um, towards the end of the episode, it does transition into colour. Um, there's more sort of saucy jokes. Some of the char- supporting characters have changed aspects of themselves. Um, you know, the fashions, the technology all seems to have updated... Um, even the home decor updates to a more 1960s aesthetic. Which is such a clever, clever touch. And I think it's done very, very well. And again, the actual sitcom aspects of the episode play very, very well. It's a, it's a very standard sitcom. Um, there's a talent show, um, except uh, where Vision is playing a magician and Wonder is his glamorous assistant. Um, But due to something going wrong with Vision's mechanics, I think he he swallows his gum, if I remember rightly. Yes, swallows gum and uh, you see a cartoon of it gumming up his internal workings. Um, What it essentially leads to is the Vision being drunk and Wanda having to use her actual magic to account for um, the errors in his performance. Or, for example, him showing off his actual powers. She then, like he, where he flies, she has to magic up a pulley and a rope, which she then casually reveals to the audience so that no one's, no one's waylaid by it. However, in this particular episode, there are three, three very prominent aspects that show that something untoward is happening here. And I think this was very, very clever on the part of and the, I, th- I think this is why the two episodes were released together, because the th- the three teases are very, very good. The first one is a toy helicopter which has crashed in Wanda's uh, front garden and is in full colour. Um, it's red and yellow. It's got a sword logo on. Oh, I should mention at the end of the first episode as well, um, as the credits were rolling for the episode of the sitcom, it moved out to uh, a woman's hands folding a notebook, clearly watching um, the episode of Division, And the, yeah, again, that sword logo was shown. Um, the second episode, the, so that the helicopter is the first one. The second one is while Wanda is having an interaction with another character, the radio in the background, which is singing um, the Beach Boys' Help Me Ronda, starts transitioning to a voice saying, Wanda, can you hear me? Very, very interesting. Very tense. And it makes both of the characters sort of come out of their <sighs> hypnosis almost. They, they break character within the sitcom world and then the final one the third one Wonder and Vision are alerted to something outside they go outside and a beekeeper again wearing the sword logo steps out of the sewer turns and looks menacingly at them to which Wanda says no and the tape rewinds the episode rewinds to where it was back inside with Wonder and Vision And this time there's no mention of the man. The man, the beekeeper, never appears again. And the world has changed. The world is different because now Wanda is pregnant. Now, those first two episodes obviously got a lot of people talking. The third episode continues with the sitcom stylings. um, This time in a very 70s-focused episode. Um, One of the supporting characters in the series called Geraldine um starts you know she becomes a bit a lot more prominent in that episode she was introduced in the second episode but she becomes a lot more prominent in the third um a re- another recurring character of Agnes within the sitcom world um becomes again very interesting sort of on the periphery always kind of knowing something uh, seeming to know more than she lets on. Especially during an interaction with Vision towards the end of the episode. Geraldine helps deliver Wanda's twins. And then after the twins are born and everything seems safe. Vision is outside. Has a an interaction with Agnes that casts some suspicion on Geraldine. And then inside we see... Uh, Wanda and Geraldine interact, and Geraldine reveals that she knows Wanda had a brother named Pietro, and Ultron killed him. So that's a real-world reference for the first time. And then um, Geraldine is flung from Westview, the town where the sitcom is taking place, And she lands outside surrounded by soldiers and armed men. That leads into the fourth episode. and the fourth episode we reveal that Geraldine is in fact Monica Rambeau, the child from um, Captain Marvel, who has now grown up and disappeared while her mother was in cancer surgery five years ago during the snap. She reappears in an incredible sequence set in hospital Where she reappears and um, finds that she has been gone for five years. To her, she was expecting her mother to come back from surgery any minute. She was just coming up from the ward. But yeah, she finds out, no, Maria Rambo actually died three years ago after the the surgery, after her cancer came back, two years after, after Monica disappeared which is a powerful scene and the first real exploration of the chaos that would have taken place around the world as the the victims of the snap came back um you know it was kind of alluded to in spider-man far from home but never to this extent and it looks almost as chaotic as this the post-credit scene of infinity war where people are disappearing but in reverse. And I think centering it in a hospital was an incredible piece of storytelling. Just showing the, the pure chaos. Um, and yeah, it turns out Monica is brought to Westview by Jimmy Woo from Ant-Man. Jimmy Woo is an FBI agent. He has a member of the Witness Protection Program in Westview who he lost contact with the that person um he contacted some known associates, and they can't remember them, so this witness seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. He went to Westview to investigate, and it turns out that Westview has disappeared off the face of the earth. Two police officers don't recall Westview ever existing, so he contacts sword, the sentient world's um observation and response division essentially like shield but for aliens and outer worlds and ch- strange phenomena um turns out sword was founded by maria rambo and monica is one of their best agents so she is sent as her first mission back after the snap um the second snap i should say the blip as it's now called And she is sent to investigate Westview with Jimmy Woo, and in the process is caught inside what becomes known as the Westview Anomaly, where she became Geraldine. More characters were brought in by S.W.O.R.D. to investigate, including Darcy Lewis from Thor, and I thought her return was amazing, because uh, it's Kat Dennings' character from the original Thor, and when we first see her in Thor, she is an assistant Um, she's, she's Jane Foster and Eric Selvig's intern, and I've forgotten what her major is actually in, but she's not majoring in science. She's interning with them, but she's not majoring in science. She reappears in Thor the Dark World, and it seems she's a more active member of Selvig and Foster's team. But this actually reveals that she's a doctor of astrophysics. Suggesting that not only did she change her major, she then went on to get a doctorate. And presumably also suggesting that she didn't even get snapped um, in order to complete her studies. Which I found absolutely incredible character development for a supporting character who was essentially comic relief from two of the more maligned films in the MCU. And but a character who I always felt deserved better. So I'm I'm glad to see that she got it. It hasn't changed her. She still very much is Darcy. She has the exact same sense of humour. The same wit. The same... The same persona. That she's always had. Um, but she does seem a lot more capable and a lot more confident in herself now than she ever did before. Um... And I like it. I think it's a, a great evolution for a minor character who I always thought deserved better. So, yeah, that was nice to see. Um, Darcy is the one that discovers the WonderVision television programme, which is brought, the sitcom, which is broadcasting from inside the anomaly. And it's, you know, throughout episode four, we see the odd events from episodes one to three in a new light and we see that the for example the the uh the toy helicopter was a rewritten sword drone that had changed when it went into the anomaly um monica changed into the character of geraldine as she was cast in the sitcom essentially um the the beekeeper was a man sent underneath westview by sword and that the the first three episodes which seem to be you know separate episodes taking place over the course of days actually all broadcast within the space of a few hours maybe a day I, i think the episode four only implies it's about a day between monica disappearing into the anomaly and being ejected from it And we learn that, yeah, when she mentioned to Wanda about Ultron, Wanda turned on her, and Wanda threw her out of the anomaly herself. Um, Wanda then saw Vision's real face, his, his dead face with his crushed head from where Thanos stole his mind gem. And yeah, it's shown that to, to the audience, in that there's a lot of sinister stuff going on inside. And when Monica comes out, she says, It's all wonder. Everything is wonder. Wanders behind all of it. And yeah, it was a very interesting choice. And the episode goes on from that, again, doing more of the sitcom stuff. Um, they do an 80s style sitcoms sort of reminiscent of um i suppose the brady bunch would be the big 80s sitcom they do uh, a 90s style one which is very clearly heavily inspired by malcolm in the middle um they do a 2000s one which is very much the sort of the modern fami- family family uh, mockumentary style series um which is taken off now um And those are episodes five, six, and seven. But in addition to those, in addition to their half an hour runtime, more time is given over to the the more unusual elements and the elements outside of Westview. And again, there's aspect ratio changes all throughout this. For example, the scene with um, Wanda and Monica inside, um, towards the end of episode four, inside the Westview anomaly that has a very very brilliantly done aspect ratio transition where you get the full you get the 80s uh the sorry the 70s style aspect ratio for the sitcom and then it transitions into the modern widescreen format as Wanda turns on Monica very very good and it's the sort of thing that lends itself to television very very well it's harder to pull something like that off in the cinema i would have thought Um, than it is on television. And, yeah, it's very, very well done. And, yeah, there's... (laughs) Sorry, that's one of my neighbours yelling outside. So, yeah, there's, um... Some very, very interesting developments. As the story goes on... More things are revealed to the audience. More things about, um... Like tensions between vision and Wanda um, within the the sitcom world, um, sort of hints at Wanda's mental state, um, hints at her actions prior to Westview, but nothing becomes concrete until episode eight, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, and bear in mind, like I said, this was released weekly. Um, the problem with it releasing weekly was there was a lot of theorising. And the theories were... I mean, theorising is fine. I've, I've said with, in, in previous uh, episodes, theorising is just part of geek culture. It is something we do. The thing is, Wanda in the comics has a history of mental illness. Um that I don't always think has been portrayed in the best way. Um, there was, for example, a dark Scarlet Witch phase in the, the late 80s, early 90s. There was issues with her her children um, where she learned that she'd actually created them using aspects of a demon. Um, there was the storyline House of M um, where she went mad essentially and rewrote the entire world and in the aftermath of it like negated the mutant gene which crippled the x-men related characters um there was avengers disassembled where she was turned out to be behind um what's described as the worst day in the avengers history where several of them died they were under constant attack pretty much throughout the entire day So anyone casually looking for, like, WandaVision clues will find all of these. And the problem is for a lot of them, Wanda is under the influence of other characters, um, be it Mephisto or Doctor Doom or Immortus. And, you know, some of those characters, like Doctor Doom and Immortus, were part of the Fox license with the Fantastic Four. So they've only recently made their way back to Marvel. And Mephisto is a character that they've owned since they regained the character of Ghost Rider uh, from Universal, uh, Universal or Sony, I forgot which one it was, uh, several years ago. <sighs> And especially once Wanda was discovered to be pregnant at the end of episode two, um, you know, you could look up Wanda and Vision's children, you could find out all about that. Um, And like I said, the fact that their souls were created from aspects of demons and things like that, and and the negative things that this all did to Wanda in the comics. So naturally, people started suspecting, oh, well, Mephisto is going to appear and, um, you know, he's going to be behind the kids and he's going to have been behind the Westview thing and it's all going to be part of a a, a warp and a temporal thing. Um, With the fact that Wanda's powers in the comics have been used for reality altering, um, people were wondering if this was going to be how, um, you know, the multiverse would be used. I mean, we already knew that Wanda was going to be reappearing in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which is now coming next year. Um, and that WandaVision would lead into that um, and that the What If series is coming at some point I uh, believe it's now set for August this year so we knew all these things were coming all these multiverse things and then the theorising hit a whole new level after the debut of episode 5 and the final scenes of episode 5 after a particularly tense moment between Wanda and Vision within the sitcom world There's a knock at the door. She opens the door, and standing there is Pietro. However, he's not played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who played him in Age of Ultron. Instead, he is played by Evan Peters. Evan Peters played the character of Peter, also known as Quicksilver, in the X-Men universe, the Fox X-Men universe. Specifically, the films Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix. Um... Now, audio descriptions that were released identified him as um, the Fox version of Quicksilver. Um, Within the actual show, he's only ever described as a recast Pietro. And in episode six, he does act somewhat similar to his Fox version, but also much more sinister. There's clearly something else behind him. And yes, it's a very, very intriguing idea and but it got a lot of people thinking oh are we going to get a reverse house of m and this is how the mutants are going to be introduced and it's going to meld the fox x-men universe into the marvel cinematic universe and etc etc loads of very very interesting ideas the only problem was i think a lot of this built on things that aren't necessarily in the show and we're inferring from the comics and that's not necessarily a bad thing obviously the marvel cinematic universe is based on the comics but marvel have proven that they they don't necessarily take things from the comics wholesale everything i think that has made its way into the marvel cinematic universe has been changed from how it is depicted in the comics even the characters themselves um a lot of people were speculating like the characters themselves and how they appear in the first avengers movie is very similar to mark miller's ultimate's work um i'll have to talk about the the ultimate universe at some point because it's a uh, oh boy it's a bit of a nightmare and i'm not a huge fan of mark miller but um it's very dark very tense and very modern quote unquote and <laughs> There's an element to that. However, the characterization that is in the MCU, these characters are not the ultimate versions. They are much closer to their the sort of original 60s depictions for the most part. Captain America especially, but some of the others have more, more modern depictions or somewhat completely new depictions. For example... Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s depiction of Tony Stark went some way towards influence in the comics. Tony Stark, as depicted in the MCU, has the nickname Tony Snark. And it's very deserving that the Marvel humour started with the first Iron Man movie because of Robert Downey Jr.'s improvisation. You know, that depiction of Iron Man is something that has now made its way to the comics but didn't necessarily come from the comics that characterization of the character and even with it, um films that have adapted much more much more liberally uh sorry much more wholesale from the comic books things like civil war there have been very definite changes to make the events of the comics match the universe or or, t- or take the the bare bones plot of the si- of the story, but adapt it adapt the universe to it. So it's kind of, I, I think I'm tying myself in knots here. Civil war is a good example. Civil war in the comics features a the destruction of a town. By a group of junior superheroes, which then leads to... It's like the final straw in proposing a a superhero registration act. Captain America vehemently opposes it, um, and Tony Stark supports it. Now, in the comics, the characterization of both of them feels a bit off. Captain America's usually been more supportive of the government and S.H.I.E.L.D. especially, whereas Tony has been a lot more distrustful of them. But it seems that in the comics, they were written to match those those particular viewpoints, um, because that's what Marvel wanted to do. That's what Marvel Comics editorial wanted to do. Um Again, it's written by Mark Miller, and I do think a lot of the characterization there comes across more similar to the Ultimates version of Captain America especially, um, with how Mark Miller writes it. Um, obviously, there's much many, many more superheroes involved in the comics, and it affects most of them. There's some very dramatic battles. Um, a couple of the Avengers are killed. Um, There's a clone of Thor created by Tony Stark and Mr. Fantastic, who kills the character of Goliath. Um, And towards the end of the issue, uh, you know, Spider-Man reveals his identity publicly before switching sides, um, which leads to a lot of dramatic changes for him. And in the aftermath of Civil War, Steve Rogers surrenders to the government and then is later killed um so of course when the third captain america movie was announced as captain america civil war um certain people expected that um it would follow a lot of the same events there'd be the thor clone and we'd get a character death and captain america would probably die towards the end of it or lose his powers at the very least none of that actually happened Instead, the core plot of there being a a division and a, a superhero act, you know, governing their their how how superheroes are used and the divisions between Captain America and Tony, um, it was all incorporated, but it felt a lot more organic to how the Marvel Cinematic Universe had been built up, um, you know, up until. Th- that point, for example, I don't think anyone would have expected uh, Tony to be the one siding with the government. Um, You know, he was the one who told the government to you know, to go away in Iron Man 2. He he told them he didn't answer to them in the second Iron Man movie. He seemed more antagonistic towards S.H.I.E.L.D. in the first Avengers movie. But what the Civil War film did is it tied itself very strongly to Age of Ultron. In doing that, you had Tony's guilt at creating Ultron be his main motivating factor. It also tied itself quite strongly to The Winter Soldier, where you had Captain America's distrust of Shield of Shield after finding out that SHIELD was infected with Hydra. Or um as being his motivation for distrusting the government. So that was a very good way of incorporating the comic book elements, but in a way that felt more natural and organic to the MCU as it has evolved. And that's what One Division did. One um, Division did manage to, it didn't introduce the Fox X Men, it didn't introduce Mephisto, it didn't really do any big reality writing stuff. Instead, what it did was it had it all been Wanda's fault. This is the, the clues we're given from episode four. It's all Wanda. And it is. Um, you know, even the the villain of the piece, the closest we get to a villain, um, the character of Agnes, the nosy neighbour, who is revealed to be a witch, a very long-lived witch, called Agatha Harkness, uh, something that a lot of Marvel fans... Pinned straight away um, due to a quick Google search. Uh, I think from the minute Catherine Han was cast, people were expecting that, (laughs) oh no, that's going to be Agatha Harkness. And don't get me wrong, she is the villain, you know, of the piece. There is a very definite song which um, trended on iTunes and will definitely be one of my top listened to songs on Spotify at the end of the year called Agatha All Along. Part sung by Catherine Han, in fact, um, which reveals that she's been manipulating Wanda um, throughout a large part of the show, including the creation of the fake Pietro. That was her. She was behind that. And it was done to to sort of motivate Wanda to, to find out how Wanda had done this. And that's where you get to episode 8 and we find out the actual truth. Um, And it's something that we've suspected up until this point. Which is that Wanda is being driven by her grief. And it makes perfect sense. Wanda, when I first started reading the Avengers comics, I started reading with Kurt Busiek's run in the 90s. And... Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, was a key player in that. Um, her marriage with the Vision was over, but they still obviously had history and connection there. And, yeah, Wanda was a, a key player in a lot of that run. She was one of the more consistent team members. Uh, like, at some a, a certain point in that comic, a lot of the classic Avengers leave um, during that run. Um, so you Captain America, Thor... Um, iron man or kind of leave the team wanda stayed so as a result scarlet witch was always a character that i really liked but i think the mcu version may be probably my favorite version of the character and a key part part of that is a lot of what she has been through wanda we find out in age of ultron she lost her parents very young Um, and she thought for a couple of days that her and her brother Pietro were going to die. Pietro then dies in Age of Ultron itself. We then have um, Civil War not long after that, and she's the one responsible for the inciting incident in Civil War. She's trying to help, but through a miscalculation, she leads to a lot of people dying. And she's horrified by that. There is a look of just pure horror on her face. The whole central battle of Civil War involves her to a certain extent. It's, you know, to keep her safe and keep her free. And, you know, her romance with Vision blossoms throughout this as well. Um, And then you fast forward to Infinity War. She's been on the run for two years Um, after spending time in prison and being broken out by Captain America. And, you know, Black Widow and Cap have been helping her see Vision, and her and Vision have grown closer over these two years. And then, across the course of Infinity War, she has to kill Vision herself, first of all, then watch as time is rewound, and he is killed in front of her, within minutes, And then a few minutes after that, the snap happens and she disappears. When she returns to life, she's instantly thrown into this life-or-death battle for the universe. She has one of the most epic moments against Thanos in the entire end battle of Endgame, where she says to him, you took everything from me. So which the the time-displaced version of Thanos is, I don't even know who you are, comes across as even more callous. And then we find out that WandaVision is only taking place a matter of weeks after that final battle. Wanda has lost everything. Her family, her her parents, her brother, her partner. All within the space of... I mean, with her, with her brother and her partner as well, all within the space of a few years. The events of Infinity War, uh, Endgame, and the effects of WandaVision to her have taken place within a month you know we we know from when Monica returned in episode 4 that she has no memory of those 5 years in the blip you know that 5 years where she didn't exist Wanda would be exactly the same so the past month for Wanda has been full of very very traumatic stuff and we learn in episode 8 through Agatha's manipulations as we relive their history That's exactly what happened. Her grief consumed her to the point that she ended up creating Westview. And unknowingly trapping everyone within Westview in her grief. And that's powerful stuff. And one of the key themes of the series is is Monica who... You know, Monica's determination to reach Wanda, to help her... Because after being within Westview and having Wanda's grief inside her head, Monica knows exactly what she's going through. Because from Monica's perspective, she's just lost her mother. After thinking her mother was fine, she finds out that her mother's dead and she missed it. She wasn't there for the last two years of her mother's life. When her cancer returned, when it was, you know, past the point of survival. And operation and prevention. And yeah. It's it's really powerful. I think. Um, the metaphor for grief. Um, that's done through the show. And how. People who are grieving. Without meaning to. Can hurt and damage. The people around them without meaning to with the best of intentions, with, you know, Wanda trying to to build something new for herself, to to bring back her 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 partner, to bring back her kids, you know, to to, to bring her kids into existence. She was trying to do something positive and the town of Westview and the people within it were the casualties, the you know, the the people affected by that. And it's heartbreaking. Like, the final episode of WandaVision, the, the, the denouement when it, everything ends and the Westview anomaly collapses, and how the people there look at her and the final goodbye to her children and to Vision. It's powerful stuff. It made me cry the first time I watched it. It made me cry again when I watched it um, for this podcast. Knowing that it was coming. It's it's traumatic. And I think it was really, really well done. Um, I think if you can separate out the theories that everyone was expecting. And just go by what's in the show. And what is in the show is really, really good. And gives you everything you need. Yes, some people were annoyed that, for example, Quicksilver just turns out to be someone called Ralph Boner. But at the same time, he has headshots. What kind of person might have headshots except for someone maybe in the witness protection program? So what if Ralph Boner is the very reason that everyone's there in the first place investigating? (sighs) There's much more to WandaVision, obviously. Um... The character of Agatha is a very interesting antagonist and what happens to her I think has a lot of potential to bring her back in the future. Um, The introduction we get to Wanda's kids before we lose them, Tommy and Billy, they're brilliantly done and Tommy and Billy are, well, Billy especially, is one of my favourite Young Avengers in the comics. And the actor playing him as a child is very, very good. Um, I don't think if he was to return, that actor necessarily would return as him. Um, but I wouldn't be adverse to that. Um, I think Marvel's had some very, very good luck with all of their actors, but especially their child actors. I was a huge fan of the, the actress who played Cassie in the first two Ant-Man movies. Um And she was recast during the five-year gap, not only for Endgame, but she's going to be recast for the upcoming Ant-Man 3. And to me, part of that is a shame because I I love the I thought the actress did a brilliant job up until now. But it is what it is. But there's there's more as well. Like Monica gets superpowers by travelling through the Hex several times. And the scene in which that happens is is very well done. We hear Echoes of her past um, with her mother and with Carol from Captain Marvel. And we know that she's going to come back and there's a a post-credit hint towards Skrull. um, Showing that she'll probably be linked into the upcoming Secret Invasion show as well as um, the Marvel's movie with Captain Marvel. And there's even a new version of Vision. We find out that the Vision that was created inside Westview by Wanda is sort of a reflection of Vision, but he doesn't have... He has a lot of Vision's personality, but he doesn't have Vision's memories. Meanwhile, Vision's body has been rebuilt, but doesn't have access to the memories. Um... And the final episode involves a discussion, a philosophical discussion, the ship of Theseus. Um, And that is how Vision ends the battle. Which fits perfectly for that character. But in doing part of it, he acknowledges that neither of them are the true Vision, but both parts of Vision. So his solution there is to fix, uh, give Vision access back to his memories. Which is very, very well done. Um, And so... The body of Vision, which is now white... um, Leaves with his memories intact. Or at least with access to them. We don't know for definite how he responds to that. But Vision leaves. So... Vision could potentially return in the future, which would be very, very interesting. In fact, the the post credit sequence at the end of the show has been changed since I watched it originally, um, with a cloaked figure now descending towards the um, the cabin where Wanderers hold up with the dark hold. Um, now the speculation is that could be we don't see the cloaked figure; it's kind of superimposed. Um, almost like they're invisible but we can see them moving so it could be Doctor Strange or it could be White Vision either of which would be interesting prospect for the future the the White Vision thing also led to a a bit of unnecessary theorizing because Paul Bettany said that he would get to work in the final episode with an actor who he's always admired but never been able to Interact with before, which was a an expert level of trolling on his part towards the fan base, but something I think Marvel will crack down on as a result. Um, yeah, I think I think if you're a, if you're not a fan of sitcoms, you might struggle with the first few episodes of One Division. I think episode four makes a better starting point if you're not a fan of sitcoms, but Episodes one to three are are definitely good. I think as well part of the issue with it is, and this is something that will become clear with all of the MCU stories as we, um, as I carry on talking about them, is it structured very much like a almost like a six hour film. Uh, that's true of a lot of streams um, streaming TV nowadays. Um, it's structured like a film, not structured like a series. Um despite the fact it's released weekly um you know the episodes of one division aren't episodic; they are a chapter in a story um for example, episode four comes at the end of the first two hours, so essentially that's your your end act one twist that you'd get in a film narrative um episode sort of five and six. Becomes almost like the midpoint, um, where Wonder expands the the hex, the anomaly, um, and traps more people in it, including Darcy. Um, episode seven, the reveal of uh, Agatha Harkness and the the amazing Agatha All Along song, is almost your end of Act Two, with the final exploration of Wonder's past through Agatha as well as the final battle with Agatha, all being your Act 3 conclusion. And whether, how, how much that works for people is debatable. For me, it worked. I, I really enjoyed WandaVision. I thought it did a lot of things right. I do think the theorisation got away from people. And I think it's soured the experience for a lot of people, but I do think one division will be one of those chapters of the m c u which gets held in higher higher regard and higher esteem. The more time goes on um the more distance you become from it, the more people that will watch it now as a completed series um And I think they'll appreciate it more, especially when we see where some of the effects of it will go. Um, For example, with Wanda and her children, you know, and Vision and if and when and how they all reappear again. And what they do with Wanda, if they go the villain route as people are expecting, I kind of hope they don't. I like the idea of Wanda being damaged and flawed, but still being a hero. She she has right intentions. not always, Not always necessarily altruistic and noble intentions, but definitely the right intentions. And I don't like the trope of someone's grief turning them into a villain. I think that's... Especially with women, I think it's a bit trite. Um... Especially the grief of a lost child. I mean, I I am a parent. I understand what that grief could do to someone. But I don't... I don't like it as a storytelling device to turn women into villains. I think. Especially a woman who is a hero. Like Wanda. I wouldn't want her to become an out-and-out villain. So it'll be interesting to see what Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness does with her when it releases next year. So, yeah, that's my view on WandaVision. <laughs> yeah, I do recommend it. Um, it's It looks amazing. It's got some very, very funny moments in it, uh, in both the sitcom stuff and other stuff as well. Um the reveal of Agatha is brilliant Darcy is amazing uh as is Jimmy Woo like the developments of existing characters and where they've now ended up I think is is really 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 well done um so yeah I realized I'm barely talking about the other major villain which was the the sword director um but yeah, he becomes—he's—he's he's kind of the um, the evil Jeff Bridges archetype, which the MCU does so well. Um, he's not not a bad character by any means, um, but just not as interesting as Agatha in terms of a final antagonist for the series. Um, almost to the point that, again, I think part of this might be a casualty of reshoots. Um, not being done because of COVID, but him and Darcy both seem to almost be let down a bit by the finale. They don't get as much to do. Like, Darcy has one appearance and one line in the finale, and I think a key part of that would be that reshoots weren't possible. But the series was very well done. So, yeah. So... I'd recommend it if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it and you were maybe disappointed by it the first time round, maybe because of the theorising, maybe because of the sitcom stuff, try and watch it in a binge. Um, Maybe start with episode four if the sitcom thing isn't really your bag uh, and go from there. You know, maybe watch episode four, then re-watch episodes one to three and sort of see how the bits you've seen the other side of and how they impact you and whether you have a new appreciation for those episodes. But, yeah, it's an interesting idea and a very bold new way of taking Marvel storytelling. Um, I mean, part of me would love more WandaVision sitcom stuff. I, I don't think we'll get it at all but you know if they ever want to make a a WandaVision the lost episode because there were clearly other episodes of the the WandaVision show than what we saw um in the the main featured episodes um you know we see Jimmy and Darcy watching several other episodes so we know that other episodes of this show exist within the universe of the MCU I'd be open to seeing more I thought it was very very funny when it was when it was done well. It was it was definitely a loving homage to the sitcoms. So yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with Wonder next. And yeah, there's a lot I haven't explored from those final episodes in this bit, despite the fact I've been talking about WandaVision for nearly an hour already. Um but yes, I do I do recommend watching it. There's a lot more to discover in it. So, from division, we move on to something very, very different, which is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, obviously, stars the two characters of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, both of whom first appeared in the Captain America, the Winter Soldier movie, um, although it was revealed that Winter Soldier is actually Bucky, who appeared in the first Captain America film, um, both of whom then reappeared in Captain America Civil War, Um, and then Infinity War and Endgame. Now, obviously, the two characters are both very closely linked to Captain America. So what this show essentially becomes is a story of legacy. At the end of Avengers Endgame, um, Steve Rogers, after living his whole life with Peggy and growing old, gave the shield to... Uh, Sam Wilson, the Falcon, um, telling him that it belonged to him. Now, Falcon and the Winter Soldier as a series basically follows Sam wrestling with that decision as to whether or not he should wield the shield, whether he should become the new Captain America. Um... While also dealing with the sort of how the Winter Soldier is returning to his life, how Bucky is returning to civilian life, how he's coping with his win- after being removed from the programming of the Winter Soldier. It's a very, very interesting show, but it's very. It's much more grounded and much more straightforward. There is a lot of similarity in many, many respects to the Winter Soldier film in that there's a very political focus at the core of the story, um, you know, and and elements of civil war in that you could sympathise with the villains to a certain extent. Um, there's characters with grey areas and... It's very... It's very good. Um, It becomes almost like a six-episode chase mystery story. Um, But the thing... The main thing at its core um, are the political themes. The fallout from the snap. um, And whether the world was better... Um with half the population missing, whether the effect that had on different countries on the geopolitical state skate stage sorry um were better, and what should be done now that half the population billions of people have returned to life and that's that's an interesting question which i you know the films at the end of the infinity saga obviously endgame didn't really have time to address it and Spider-Man Far From Home didn't really address it at all, um, despite the fact that the the kids are back at school and presumably haven't had their birthdays because Peter Parker is still 16. So that's a a core part of it. The the villains, the Flag Smashers, believe that the world was better during the blip um, and that the people who are now being relocated and... Sent back to their countries of origin have almost like they deserve to be heard and they're not being heard which is very very topical especially with things that were going on last year especially with some of the racial themes that are addressed in this as well um i mean there's one scene where sam and bucky are having an argument and sam being a black man is then accosted by the police and obviously the the Black Lives Matter marches that we saw last year, and the you know after the murder of George Floyd, that that sort of conversation became very very important, and obviously some of this was filmed. You know this the majority of this season was filmed and. Written way before those protests last year, but if anything, the coronavirus and the effects of it, and how it's affected working and poorer classes, especially in America, um, but around the world, and especially um, black youth, it's become all the more prescient as a show, much more topical. In addressing these political and racial themes, the the issues of of classism, of young people feeling that like they're not being listened to, not being represented in decisions being made by the political class, in um, you know the the way that black people have been mistreated, especially in American history, um, for decades, and and that. That's all in the show, and I think if this were a film, uh, like a standard Marvel film, I don't think those those topics would get the, the weight they need and the focus they need. I mean, a lot of this series involves conversations, and to me, the conversation scenes, I mean, as cool as the action sequences are in the MCU, and there are some amazing ones. I mean, films like Thor Ragnarok, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War feature amazing, amazing action scenes. But some of the quieter conversations to me can be more memorable and more important. One of my favourite scenes in the entire MCU is the scene where the Avengers are discussing the Sokovia Accords in Captain America's Civil War. And it's seven characters in a room arguing and debating, you know, the ethical and moral implications of what they do as superheroes. And it reveals so much character between them. with how it's handled, how the characters act, how they interact with each other. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier is full of moments like that. So many of the the pivotal moments in this show are conversations between two characters, sometimes more characters. And yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant and I think it's the sort of thing that needed the format of a show to be done um you know WandaVision has a very particular format in mind um with the sitcoms with the the transitions that requires the television show format Falcon and the Winter Soldier could work as a movie but it couldn't be six hours as a film it would only be maximum of what two and a half hours maybe three hours So a lot of these conversations, a lot of these side plots would be cut and that would hurt the show. For example, one of Bucky's ongoing plots is him trying to make amends to a man whose son he killed years ago while he was the Winter Soldier. You know, so we're talking at least a decade prior at the time this is set um, because he stopped being the Winter Soldier in 2014. And he's, you know, that was when he was used by Pierce and freed by Cap. And this series is set after the, f- well, six months after the Avengers return. So we're looking at sort of early 2024. So, yeah, over a decade ago. But this man is still hurt by the loss of his son. He, he has no idea what happened and why. Um, And Bucky is the person who can provide him answers with that. But Bucky struggles to do so he shares a genuine bond with this older man um due to you know the fact that Bucky is an old man he's a man out of time uh in some ways even more than Captain America was um you know when you combine his time as the Winter Soldier his time deprogramming in Wakanda and then his time during the blip he's lived very very little life in the modern world he's he's essentially not too dissimilar to how cap was in the first Avengers film struggling to find his place in the world and you know even in that film some of Captain America's scenes were cut there was a scene with the waitress that was cut um, where Stanley tells him to ask her out um, you know this scene and this I mean in this story arc we see um, the old man suggests that Bucky asks uh, a waitress out on a date. So we see Bucky's first date since 1943. And it he struggles. And it's brilliant character stuff. But we wouldn't see it in a film. Um, same with the storylines like um, Sam and his sister trying to, you know, arguing what to do with their boat, their parents' boat. Um, because they can't afford to keep it, but it needs work before they can sell it. And they can't get a loan. It's very, very interesting. Very, very good. Um, So, yeah. I'll go more into the the plot of the series in a minute, because there's a lot I want to discuss from it. Um, But I will say as well, as well as the, the political themes that link it to the previous Captain America movies... Um, there's also a music consistency. Um, what I mean is uh, Henry Jackman, the um, person responsible for the soundtrack of The Winter Soldier, at least, and Civil War as well, I, I just checked. Um, didn't He didn't do the soundtrack for The First Avenger, but he did do the soundtrack for Winter Soldier and Civil War, um, which obviously are the two films that more directly lead into this one. Um, You know, he he also did the soundtrack for this series. Um, As a result, a lot of the music that is used in this series echoes the themes that he made for those previous two movies and the uh, themes that he inherited from the first movie um, and reworked into his own soundtracks. Um, The first movie score was done by Alan Silvestri, who also worked on the avengers and infinity war and endgame and music is one that i have seen criticized in the mcu um as being kind of forgettable the captain america movies are ones that i always felt were the exception to that rule um there are some very notable themes the winter soldier as a character when he is the winter soldier has a very particular theme which is Kind of haunting, almost, um, and the the piece of music at the end of the Winter Soldier, which is um, taking a stand, which is a very, very, very good piece of music. Um, that you know, to me, it 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 feels you get you get certain feelings from that music, as it reminds you of things within the movie. Um, you know, the the themes at play, the the taking a stand against Hydra, all of that sort of stuff. So, hearing themes like the themes for Captain America, the themes for the Winter Soldier, um, repurposed and almost remixed in... Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the series, um, I think is brilliant. And it... It goes with the returning political themes and the actual... The theme of the show to help provide almost like a legacy. Because um, the whole point of the show is the legacy of the shield. And what, sh- what Captain America's legacy is. Um... Because Captain America was the first super soldier created in the MCU. We know there are several others. I mean, even just in the films, we have the Abomination and the Red Guardian from Black Widow, um, plus the Winter Soldier. um, Yeah, the Abomination from the Incredible Hulk, the Red Guardian from Black Widow, the Winter Soldier... Um, the other Winter Soldier projects in the, the Hydra Super Soldiers from Civil War. Then if you go into the, the expanded material um, for the MCU, there's, there's references to Super Soldier projects in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, plenty of plenty of places. So, yeah, there was a definite plan to repurpose Captain America's super soldier serum, the success from it, to make more. So that becomes a key theme here as well, as well as the weight of the shield that Sam feels, where he doesn't feel like he can wield the shield. He doesn't feel like he can be Captain America. Um. So yeah, now, the, that's all the thematic stuff that I want to talk about. The rest of it is is plot-related stuff. Um, so, like I said, the focus is on Sam and Bucky. Um, now, the main plot of the story concerns the group, the Flag Smashers, who I did mention briefly earlier. Now, the Flag Smashers are led by a young woman named Carly. Uh, Carly and several of her associates are super soldiers. They have taken a new super soldier serum. And they are more sympathetic than most villains we've had in the MCU up until this point. In that they are actively trying to help people. Um, People that they feel are being ignored by the uh, GRC, which is the Global Repatriation Council. Uh, the ones who are making the decisions about what happens and what people go where and everything like that meanwhile, um Sam returns the shield to the government. The government then appoint a new captain America and uh, the new captain America is a soldier named John Walker. He's given a new costume. Uh, The new costume is only red and blue. And I did find something quite interesting out, which is that in the US Stars and Stripes, the white, red, and blue all represent something. The white represents purity. And John has no white on his costume. It is literally red and blue, Um, which becomes very interesting and almost kind of telling for his character and how his character develops and evolves. Um... Now, John initially presents himself as kind of a, you know, a go-getter. He's, he's, he's trying to be the best Captain America. He sort of respects the legacy. He never knew Steve personally, but he respects the legacy. And he tries to make peace with Sam and Bucky and get their help against the Flag Smashers. But they refuse to help him. And thus he starts to get sort of more and more wound up by his own inability to deal with the flag smashers and his own, you know, their efforts almost to undermine him. And eventually that leads to him, combined with the loss of his teammate, um, Battlestar, it leads to him. Killing one of the flag smashers in public, and it's recorded and sent online, which then leads to him being stripped of the role of Captain America, and the uh, Bucky and Sam taking the shield off him in a particularly violent confrontation. Um, and you do kind of feel bad for him. He's, you know, he's definitely in the wrong, but. you do feel for the man as well he he does he doesn't feel like he deserved everything that happened in that he yes he made a mistake you know he made a mistake because his emotions got out of control you know he 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 was almost hard done by by the main characters. And, you know, a confluence of circumstance leads to him making this drastic decision. And he does get a sort of semi heroic um redemption by the end. Um and is turned to a character called the US Agent. Um by a character a new character called uh Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. Don't call her Val. Um, now, Valentina was originally meant to debut in Black Widow, um, which obviously would have released before Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, because Black Widow is pushed back, she instead debuts here. I think this works as a better debut for her, um, because she gets more stuff to do. And she makes a... Mu- having seen Black Widow as well, she was only in the post credit scene for, this, for that. Whereas with this, she has a couple of scenes and she gets some amazing lines. She's played brilliantly by uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus, And, you know, she, yeah, very good. Very good as the character. Um, I'm very interested to see what they do with her and the, the sort of characters that she's gathering. She seems to be sort of Phase Four's Nick Fury. Uh, but possibly with slightly less altruistic motives than Fury himself. Um Valentina has quite a complex history in the comics so it'd be interesting to see what's happening there. But yeah, John Walker um as the new Captain America not for long. <sighs> yeah, I couldn't I couldn't find myself hating him as much as I felt I was meant to. Um you know, he's not an antagonist, but he's not Necessarily a hero. A character who does get almost a, a, a more definite redemption arc, though, is the character of Baron Zemo. Um, Zemo appeared in Captain America: Civil War, played by Daniel Bruhl. He was the the main antagonist. Uh, he was the one manipulating the events so the Avengers would fight. Um, turns out he is very much opposed to super soldiers. And he knows quite a bit um, about the Super Soldier Project, and he has got underground connections and things like that, all from reading HYDRA's files. So Sam and Bucky, well, Bucky mainly, helps organise his uh, break from prison. <laughs> Very entertaining. And... Um, and Zemo sort of leads them on a journey through to several areas, including Madripoor, which is an area from the X Men comics making its debut. Now that Fox now owns it, which I thought was very, very good. Um, and yeah, Zemo is is a lot of fun. He's he's got a very prominent role in two episodes, um, in the middle of the series, and then reappears some more towards the end. Um he's able to do things and go places and get responses that um, Sam and Bucky just aren't. However, we also find out that, um, obviously, the Wakandans are chasing him. We see uh, Ayo, who is the first of the Dora Milaje to ever actually speak uh, on screen. She appears in um, Civil War. She is the Dora Milaje that tells black widow to move or she will be moved um so and she's played by florence kasumba who is a very good actress so to see her get more of an expanded role here i really enjoyed uh, actually because yeah her she's been in you know black panther civil war and infinity war but never really done much Whereas here, she gets some uh, some very good action sequences. She gets some conversations. We find that her and Bucky have um, a shared history back from his time in Wakanda and uh, almost a bond there, which was, yeah, it was very, very nice to see. So hopefully this means we'll see more of Io in the future, um, which would be great. Um, Zemo goes off to the raft and we... have Yeah, we've got some some very interesting stuff with him. He's responsible for taking out the Super Soldiers. He he does not like Super Soldiers. That's his whole thing. So that's one reason why they're able to recruit him. But he goes to the lengths that Sam and Bucky aren't willing to. Like, he straight up executes the man who created the new Super Soldier Serum. Um, And at the end of the series, he's also responsible for killing the rest of the Flag Smashers. Which was, well, not him, it's his his manservant, but still. Um, So yeah, he was was nice to see more of and get more elaborated on. And hopefully we'll see more of him in the future. Because Zemo is a very interesting character in the comics. But the, whereas the comic version is essentially a Nazi, the movie version isn't. And I quite like that. The the movie version is much more sympathetic. So I'm much more willing to see this version of Zemo become a hero than I am the comic book version. So, yeah, I I enjoyed that. Um, As I said uh, when I was talking about the Flag Smashers earlier, wasn't I? Uh, Carly and the Flag Smashers are sympathetic to a point in that we can understand where they're coming from. They generally feel like... Their people are, and the people they represent are being sort of disregarded. They're at the whims of the GRC, hence why they're opposing them. Um, and for the the first three episodes, I think I was I was pretty sympathetic to them. I saw where they were coming from, um, and then they decide to have Carly blow up a building. With people inside. And it seemed like it was engineered so that we wouldn't sympathise with her from that point on. And it's like... That to me felt unnecessary. Like doing that... Sort of say, no, these guys are evil, trust us. And that was very heavy-handed in a, in a bad way, I thought. I don't know. I, th- I mean, Carly does have an impact on the show. Sam desperately tries to bond with her a couple of times, um, and you know, he. Sam gets again. The, one of the final scenes in the show is a is a conversation where he elaborates her points and said, "She, you know, she says to the the GRC members, she was willing to do what she did. She got the support that she got." because people weren't feeling listened to so you have to take that on board and that was good so i like that the legacy of her message got through um but the actions that she was undertaking makes it makes sense to me why she wasn't the one delivering it um at the end of the show and i think that was a good a good choice um but i do think maybe that heel turn of having her Explode the building was a bit unnecessary because I was, I was more sympathetic towards her up until that point. Um, after that, it was a bit annoying. Um, one other character returns and had a very mixed reception online, uh, which is Sharon Carter, the niece of well, grandniece, I suppose, of Peggy Carter, uh, who shared a kiss with Steve Rogers in Captain America Civil War, and we find out has been on the run since Captain America Civil War. Now, in Infinity War, she was believed snapped. Uh, Not Infinity War, Endgame. She was believed snapped. She was on the the list of people missing. Now, presumably, she was never snapped in this because of how she's set up. Excuse me. Because we find out that, as well as being on the run from the government, due to her actions in helping Cap and Sam and Bucky, she's also been. Uh, she's also set herself up in Madripoor as essentially a, a criminal. Um, she's a she's an art dealer, hustler, thief. You know, runs a black market. Um, but then we find out beyond that that she's also the Power Broker, um, who is essentially the person who runs Madripoor. Um, which means at several points she sort of sets herself up through the Power Broker identity as an antagonist to Sam, Bucky, and Zemo while they're there, while also helping them as Sharon, which is very interesting. And, you know, the, for example, Zemo killing her super soldier, Um, scientist clearly sets her back uh, and affects her going forward and we see that she's sort of angry about that when the heroes disappear so that was a clue to her being the power broker Um, now obviously that was something that was sort of worked out ahead of time but when she was finally revealed as the power broker in the very end episode um, there was a bit of a backlash towards it um personally I thought it was a very drastic change from the comics and I could kind of see the character change for Sharon as being interesting but to me knowing some of the things that Marvel has coming up for example secret invasion which is um a story that in the comics featured characters being replaced by scrolls I thought the idea of Sharon being replaced by a scroll would be very very interesting and that the scroll is the power broker, sort of amassing underground power. Um, although scrolls in the MCU haven't been used in quite the same way. So I'm very intrigued as to where Secret Invasion is going. But that's discussion for a year or so down the line when we finally see it. Um, so... I was intrigued by what they were doing with Sharon. However, I think the negative response online has suggested that they're probably going to walk this back a bit. um, In how they've handled Sharon so far. And walk back the idea of her being an out-and-out villain. And I'm... Yeah... I'm not sure I like that they're adapting to audience speculation like that, because I would rather see the story they had planned on telling. Now, I don't think Marvel plan as much into the future as everyone thinks they do. I think most of their planning is done retroactively. When they're developing a new product, it's like, okay, here's the characters we've got. Here's what we want to do to them. How does that affect the characters, and how can we possibly tie it in? And I think it's character first, then plot, then tie-ins. And... You know, for example, certain films like Thor The Dark World and Age of Ultron, which maybe were not quite so beloved back in the day, are definitely improved by newer projects when we see how they tie in. For example, Thor The Dark World has had a lot of impact on um, Loki and Avengers Endgame especially which has sort of raised it up in a lot of fans' eyes recently. Um, ditto for Age of Ultron and uh, WandaVision. So I think... Um, I mean, it, it's possible to walk it back, um, walk back what they did to Sharon in something subsequent without it affecting it too much. But I don't know. I think it's... An, it was interesting to see what maybe they did have planned, and work from there. So, I don't know. We'll see what they do with it. I think it's interesting. Um. Obviously, there was less spec. The power broker identity was pretty much the only thing that was ever really speculated on in this series. Um. There was far less speculation than pre than one division for definite. Um, probably because there was a lot less to speculate about. But, like I said, the plot in this is a lot more straightforward. Um, however, there is one final thing from the comics which made its debut here and became a much more central to Sam's character, which I found much more interesting. And that was the introduction of the character of Isaiah Bradley. Now... Isaiah is, in the comics, he was a black Captain America. Um, I think he was even the prototype to the original Captain America. And the implication is he was given the Super Soldier Serum before Cap. He was one of the few people that survived it. Loads of black men were, like, tested with the Super Soldier Serum. And Isaiah was the only one. Sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah was the you know one of the only ones that survived and developed powers but even then his he was never sent to fight as Captain America because a black man can't be Captain America um so his actions were underground and off the book and led to him being in prison now in the MCU they do address a lot of that history and that history is is dark it was it was written recently it was written in a a series called "Truth," which is also the title of the fifth episode of this series. Um, now, Isaiah in the show, we find out, encountered Bucky during the Korean War, um, where he was sent behind the lines to to deal with Bucky um, as the Winter Soldier. And he's barely aged since then. I mean, he has aged, but at a much slower rate. Um, He's played brilliantly by Carl Lumbly. Um, He does a very, very good job in the role. This is a a tortured man. He spent decades in prison. He was experimented on by um, presumably Hydra scientists. And they... You know, the Super Soldier Serum, the blood they got from him excuse me, from him was something that they used to create the new Super Soldier Serum. To um to create the Winter Soldier Project, the ones that we saw in Civil War, to uh it's what the scientist uh Nabel in this show used as the basis for the Super Soldier Serum that was stolen by Carly and the flag smashers. It's It's a dark story, what was done to Isaiah. And the thing is, it's very believable. And it fits the theme of stories like this. You know, black men especially being manipulated and lied to by the American government back when they didn't have rights. And, for example, there is... I've forgotten the name of the the testing, but there was one a whole load of black men were told they were being injected with tetanus and they were instead injected with syphilis purely to document and research what would happen when exposed to syphilis. And it's like, that's horrific. It's It's barbaric almost. And that's very similar to how Isaiah describes he got his powers. He was told he was injected with a whole load of stuff and told it was something else. You know, told it was a tetanus shot, told it was a vaccine. It's... Things like that, the secret histories like that, are are things that we're sort of only really finding out about now with modern civil rights movements, modern black history movements. A lot of this stuff is lost in the past... And I think for Marvel to address it head on, obviously they've done it in the comics already, but to put it out there where a mainstream audience can see it. Because, th- you know, even in 2000s, the the comics did not have the audience they once had. Um, whereas shows, the Marvel shows and movies are seen by millions and billions of people. So, Yeah. Having that discussion out in public is worth having. And Isaiah says the line to Sam at some point, he says, he says, I'm not sure how a self respecting black man could be Captain America. And this is after Sam has got the shield back from John Walker, and he is really considering being Cap. Uh, like I think at this point he's even given up his Falcon wings. Um, to another character, Torres, and yeah, it's yeah, it, it was a wor- it was a good story to tell, a very worthwhile story to tell, and I'm glad they told it, and I'm especially glad that it's a story that's been told and within universe but also on a meta-narrative um, that, it, you know, this you know, it's like when um, Watchmen mentioned the Tulsa Massacre which is now being taught in schools again in America because it was mentioned in an episode of Watchmen so I think it shows the potential that media especially comics media with the right characters have to tell important stories that deserve to be told and Isaiah's story is an allegory for like I said barbaric things that you know hundreds and hundreds of men went through hundreds probably thousands of black men went through throughout American history So I am glad that story got told. And, you know, conversations like the one between Isaiah and Sam. And, you know, Sam and Bucky and their growing friendship and their discussion. You know, it leads to things like Bucky saying when Sam, when Steve told me what he was going to do don't think any of us really considered what it meant giving a black man that shield. How could we? It's like, yeah, like I said, even this, this came out, this came out after the events of last year, but it was filmed and scripted and, you know, way before the Black Lives movement last year, the Black Lives Matter movement last year, um... You know, and the discussions that were created from it, and that s- still need to happen from it. There's a there's a lot that still needs to change in America, and well, and all over the world. There's been some disgusting racism here recently in the UK on the on the aftermath of the the Euro twenty twenty finals. And so, yeah, racism is a very clear and prevalent issue. And yeah, the, the idea of this sh- 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 blah, this series, I almost said film but not show, it's a series. The idea of this series addressing and tackling just what it would mean for a black man, a man who is aware, who, who experiences racism daily, even even with his celebrity status, even with his veteran status. But still experiences racism daily. Because that's what Falcon goes through throughout this series. Everyday racism and microaggressions are all over the place. In this show. And. You know to, to go through that daily. And then to be aware of what your ancestors. And the people before you. The generations before you have gone through. In you know the five hundred years since slavery, right through the founding of America, the civil rights movement, and the things that are still going on now, and then what would it mean to be told that you can be the symbol of America, the representation of that country, that country that treats your people like that and I thought. It was brilliant, and seeing seeing Sam not only choose to embrace that role, but then to use his platform as Captain America in the final episode to address that head-on while speaking to the GRC members. You know, to use the line, I'm a black man wearing the stars and stripes. What don't I understand? You know, people will hate me for doing this but it needs to be done and yeah it was powerful stuff i'm i'm white i i understand a lot of racist issues but i i can only ever sympathize with them i can't ever go through them and to see this story being told so well um i think it was brilliant and It's like they're going to do a sequel to this. They're going to do a Captain America film. Captain America 4. And it's just going to be Sam is Captain America. Which I am totally fine with. Sam should be Captain America. Um, And... I think for a lot of film fans, people who haven't seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier will just literally go and watch that next movie and be like, oh yeah, Sam got the shield at the end of Endgame, of course it makes sense, he's Captain America. But I think that's going to miss out a lot of key development here, and I hope that the, the fact that the showrunner is going to be responsible for the next Captain America movie, I hope, sincerely hope, that some of the themes and the struggle that Sam went through in this show is addressed in the next Captain America movie. I think it's essential that it is. Um I don't want it to I don't want people to think it was as easy as Sam just decided to be Captain America, you know. The the final episode features a title card, shows us Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And by that point, that title card is earned. We know what Sam has been through. And his transition to Captain America, he's a Captain America without the Super Soldier serum. He is literally a black man with the shield standing up for America, doing what he thinks is right. And it's perfect, and taking that legacy and going forward. I mean, Captain America has never been one of my favourite comic book characters, ever. With the MCU, Steve Rogers very quickly became one of my favourite comic book, one of my favourite characters in the entire series. You know, Civil War and Winter Soldier, I rank as two of my favourite films ever. Uh, two of my favourite films in the MCU, for definite. Um, And they centre on a character that in the comics I've never really cared about. I mean, I I do care about him. I've read The Avengers, I've read Captain America. It's a character I like, but he was never one that I would consider my favourite. But, no, in the films, Captain America has always been one of my favourites. And now that Steve has retired... I think this episode, this series has gone a long way towards showing that Sam is the perfect inheritor of that role. And Sam Wilson, who was a character that, again, didn't really focus much on in the comics, but in the films, yeah, definitely liked him. I liked what Steve brought out of him. And then to get this series where he is the main character and we see just... The journey he goes through and what it means to him to be Captain America. Yeah. I can safely say Captain America is Sam Wilson and he is still one of my favourite characters. And yeah, I'm really glad. And it's a good show that has a lot to address and does it. Very, very well, I think. Very, very well. And as important as division's discussions of grief are, I think the, the, the messages in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the, the racial history, the political tensions, that's just as deserving of a platform. and And a platform like this and being discussed so openly and frankly as it is in this show. And, again, the discussion of legacy. You know, the legacy not only of Captain America, but the legacy of, you know, even when that legacy can be bad, how it can lead to things like what happened to Isaiah. You know? Because there's a lot of people in history that we hold on a pedestal. As Zemo says about Captain America, you hold people on pedestals and you forget their flaws. And there's a lot of very flawed people in history um, you know, uh, Winston Churchill in Britain is always a common example of a very flawed historical figure. Winston Churchill led humani- uh, led Britain through one of the darkest times in its history. Um, being the Second World War. And, you know, the Battle of Britain and the constant bombing that Britain suffered after you know, after the Dunkirk evacuations, after, during the Battle of Britain and onwards, when Britain was pretty much alone in Western Europe against the Nazis. And yet, Winston Churchill was a very, very flawed person. He's responsible for, um some appalling military decisions, he's been linked to um, some very, very racist, very sexist comments, even for the time. Um, He's been linked to, uh, it was a genocide or a famine um, in the Indian, Indian subcontinent. So yeah, very, very problematic individual. Uh, but a lot of the people will only look at the war record or what they would learn in popular culture from the Second World War and won't address just how flawed Winston Churchill was. But I think with the character's legacy, you have to look at the impact of all of their legacy. And that was the that's some of the key points of this show, by examining the legacy of the super soldier serum and Captain America through the eyes of someone like Isaiah. It was very well done, and I'm glad it was done. I think it was definitely necessary to do. But yeah, I'm I'm very excited for Captain America 4. I hope it continues this, the trend and discussion of the things that were involved in this show. And yeah, there's a lot of characters from this show I'm very much looking forward to seeing again. Um, which I never thought I would, like Ao and Zemo and... Val, Valentina, <laughs> even John Walker. It'll be interesting to see where all these characters come back again. So, yeah, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I strongly recommend. I think it's. I don't think of the three Disney Plus series we have so far, it's my favorite. I, I do prefer One Division and Loki over it. But it is very, very good. And I'd still rank it as one of the best things in the MCU overall. So, yeah. Now, before I talk about Loki, um, because I want to discuss all of Loki at once, um, I'm going to discuss Black Widow. Now, this section will contain spoilers for Black Widow. Obviously, it has only recently been released, and even then, only in cinemas or on Disney Plus Premier Access, so... If you do not want to listen to any spoilers for Black Widow, please pause this podcast, come back when you have seen it, and I will gladly love to for you to return to the podcast and listen to listen to my thoughts then and discuss them with me if you want to um if you so if you if you have seen the film or you don't care about spoilers you know, then feel free to stay. But if you do care about spoilers or if you haven't seen it, this is your last chance. Okay? All right. Now, uh, Black Widow is a prequel. It is set um, days after um, the airport battle in Captain America Civil War. It's even set before Captain America frees the Avengers at the end of Civil War. Um, as you find out during the film. Which means it's also set slightly before Black Panther in 2016. Now, the film doesn't start then. In fact, it starts in 1995 um, with Natasha and her family. However, we learn that they are not a blood family. Instead, their family consists of Natasha, who has been in the Red Room already, a younger sister, Yelena, who is too young to understand that this family is fake, their mother, Melina, and uh, their father, uh, who is Alexi. Alexi is... um, we learn very quickly is superpowered and it's played by David Harbour. He's very, very good in this. And yes, they, they have dinner, but we learn while they're having dinner that Alexi has done something in this completed some mission in Ohio where, where they've been for three years has some information and now they have like an hour to get away before the police come after them. Um, so yeah, what follows is a pretty tense chase. Um, Black Widow. Well, and Black Widow at this point, is she Natasha? Um, you know, during the, the chase, Melina gets shot. Uh, so Natasha ends up flying the plane. Um, despite the fact she's still a young child. Um, and then when they arrive in Cuba, Melina is taken away for hospital treatment. Um, Alexei says he wants to go, you know, says to his commanding officer, Drakov that he wants to go. He wants his suit back. He wants to go back into the action. And Natasha and Yelena are taken away by Drakov's men and sent to the Red Room. To which Natasha says she doesn't want to go back and she doesn't want Yelena to go there. So it really gives us an idea of what's going to happen and that it's not going to be good. Um, From there, the opening credits show the Red Room's programming. Um, It echoes a lot of what we've seen before in the flashbacks in Age of Ultron and also elements of um, Agent Carter with the Red Room training, the hypnosis, the, uh, the the ballet, the... Yeah, the... It's very good. It's very, very trippy, but there's also a lot of dark stuff. We see that Dracov is in control of it. Um... But then we flash forward to 2016, and this is where we learn that Yelena is still acting as a Black Widow when she is hit with a chemical by one of her targets. The chemical frees her from a sort of mind control state that she was in. um, Where she expresses guilt at what she's done and then takes what's left of that chemical and sends it to Natasha through an old Dropbox. Natasha's then chased by a Taskmaster and attacked over it. Natasha learns what it is, learns that Yelena must have sent it due to a photo um, of them as girls. And, you know, from there, teams up with Yelena, eventually gets the family back together um, by freeing Alexei from prison, teaming up with Melina and taking on drakov's red room which she thought she'd gotten rid of years ago when she thought she'd killed drakov while defe- defecting to shield um this gives us an idea of what happened what exactly happened in budapest um her and clint barton supposedly killed drakov um and his daughter which is uh again something that was expressed in the first Avengers film by Loki is something that she was inc- that Natasha was guilty about. Um, she was guilty about Drakov's daughter, and we learned that Drakov's daughter was like, um, you know, a young girl that Natasha considered an acceptable casualty to get her into Shield because she needed Drakov's daughter so to learn that she had gotten Drakov and killed him. Uh, and then they spent ten years in Budapest, uh, ten days. Sorry, in Budapest, being chased by Hungarian special forces, which is uh, very, very interesting. Um, to finally get the answer to that and have it not be quite as dramatic as everyone is expecting, but still much more dramatic than I think a lot of people thought. Um, the idea that they were having to hide in different parts of the city, um, including a, a duct above a train line, uh, yeah. It was it was good. It was interesting. I liked it. Um, so yeah, she ends up reteaming with her family and taking on the Red Room. Now the Red Room is on a floating. I don't know, like a sky station almost. It's similar to a helicarrier in terms of how it's staying in the air, but it's much more of like a a station rather than a giant moving aircraft carrier. Um, and we learn that Draykov is in control of widows all over the globe. Taskmaster is like his personal assassin who is able to mimic the moves of pretty much every character they see. Um, so they fight like Captain America. They fight like Black Panther. They fight like Hawkeye. They fight like Black Widow. We learn as well that Taskmaster is in fact Draykov's daughter who also survived the explosion as well as Dracov, and he's turned her into this weapon, and he has black widows going through the Red Room constantly, um, and has loads of them, all mind-controlled, all subjugated by something that Melina created based on the data that they stole in Ohio. (sighs) Yeah, it's... It's dark. There's a lot of some some dark ideas. I do think the Red Room is maybe a bit too powerful. They're almost like a a second Hydra. I'm not sure if that's a a a wise decision. I mean it's all Dracov. It's all his personal power. But there's no real explanation of where he got this power from, how he got it. He's the man's clearly got resources, but we don't know how. You know, I can't imagine the Red Room is still being sponsored by the Russian government at this point. Um and Hydra's gone, and you know, so so what gives Dracov all of his power? Presumably Hydra didn't even know about him, or Black Widow would have found out before now that Dracov was still alive. So yeah, very interesting. I will say the film. The film is decent. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's one of the best Marvel films. It doesn't necessarily connect too much, except for Civil War and possibly Infinity War, in terms of Black Widow's character ex- exclusively. It doesn't really connect to anyone else. Um... Presumably, it is going to connect to more things in the future. I mean, the post credit scene features Valentina and Yelena. Suggesting that Yelena is one of Valentina's agents and she's being sent up by Valentina after Hawkeye. So we know that Yelena is going to appear in Hawkeye, which is presumably why Black Widow is having to be released now so that Hawkeye can be released later in the year. So after months of 14 months, I think it is, of being pushed back due to the coronavirus pandemic, Black Widow has to release now for the rest of Marvel's schedule to release on time. So, that's, I mean, it's interesting that that's what's going to happen, but I don't think it adds much to the character of Natasha. Natasha's obviously dead now, she died in Endgame. Um, so I don't think the prequel necessarily adds much, except for show just, how important the Avengers are to her, which we already knew through Infinity War and Endgame. So, yeah, no, I really don't feel like it adds much necessarily as a prequel. It's a very entertaining prequel. But, you know, we know Natasha's never really in any danger. We know that despite being captured by Ross at the end of the, you know, Secretary Ross... At the end of the film, she escapes. We don't know how, but we know she does. Um, Because she ends up on the run with um, Sam and Steve. So... (sighs) I don't know. Um, I mean, it's an enjoyable film. I just wish it had come out earlier. I mean, it would have been nice if it could have been out before Infinity War. Um, But... As it is, it's not a bad film. It adds some great characters. Um, Alexei and Yelena are the two two brilliant ones. Um, Taskmaster's kept alive for the future and deprogrammed um, from the Black Widows, uh, along with loads of other Black Widow characters. Um, So there's a potential for a lot of Black Widow agents in the future. Um, Especially Yelena. Yelena's played by Florence pugh she's brilliant in the role. Um again, a lot of her better scenes are conversations. That seems to be a theme for um phase four is conversations and what it means to the characters. Uh which is good. I- I'm very glad of that. I mean the action scenes are great and everything, but yeah, the conversations, the characters, that's what I want to see more of. And they are very 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 good conversations um there are some brilliant ones between yelena and natasha especially uh one of my favorite ones which i found just ridiculously endearing was yelena talking about her vest and it turns out to be the vest that um natasha is wearing in infinity war which yelena gives to her at the end of black widow and elena reveals it's the first piece of clothing she's ever bought for herself and at first natasha mocks it but then says no it is pretty cool and elena's like yes i know it's so cool right it's got all these pockets she's made all these modifications to it she's so proud of this this jacket vest thing and it's just incredibly endearing i think um just what it reveals about the character so, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to see more of Yelena. I thought she was a lot of fun. Um, Alexei is also a lot of fun. He turns. We find out he's a super soldier called the Red Guardian, Russia's only super soldier. And, you know, by the time we meet him, he's overweight, he's drunk, he's been exiled to, like, a Russian gulag in the middle of Siberia for years, possibly decades. Um... But, you know, he's brash, he's outspoken, he's always trying, he seems like, he seems like he tries to make amends with the family, um, but is never very good at it. Like, usually because the characters are either out of the room, or can't hear him, or other things, so eventually at the end, he says, uh, when Natasha asks him if there's anything he wants to say, he said, no, I'd only mess it up. And yeah so I'd I'd be interested in seeing more of him if David Harbour wants to play more of him I thought he was he was very good in the role um and it'd be nice to see more of the red guardian um I don't know yeah sort of a a, a comic relief character but definitely an interesting as well like he's able to hold his own against Tazmaster he does kind of get his ass kicked as well, but he, he kind of holds his own a bit. Um. Y- uh, Alexei and Yelena actually create the most interesting parts of the whole family dynamic. Um, Alexei refers to the three years he spent undercover as a chore. And to Yelena... She was too young to understand when she was a kid. So those three years are the best years of her life. She thought it was real. You know, she sees Natasha as her sister, Melina and Alexei as her parents. She wasn't like Natasha who knew it was fake. And it leads to, again, done through a conversation, well, a couple of conversations, a very, very powerful confrontation where Yelena says, this was all real to me. And you've all acted like it was a chore. Something you hated. So then Alexei tries to make amends by singing what was Yelena's favourite song. Which was American Pie. And yeah. It's it's a sweet moment. And it's soon undercut by dramatics as the plot ramps up. But yeah. It's, it's sweet. And I think the characters are, are very interesting. And I think... I think the introduction of Yelena and Alexei sort of justify this film and its existence because Yelena is going to be important later on I don't think it adds much to Natasha but it gives Yelena a connection to her and Yelena is very very different from how Yelena appears in the comics which again I'm also grateful for because again in the comics do not like her I think she's a villain at most appearances I'm not interested in her and as I said Yelena in the movie is incredible she's a lot of fun um she has some brilliant lines there's a lot of it's almost like there's some rivalry between her and Natasha at several points. Like she mocks how Natasha kind of poses when she fights. And then at one point Yelena does a very similar pose and then sort of like shakes and like disgusting, which I thought was a very, very nice touch. Um, They also have the best action scene in the movie where the two of them are fighting and their movements are essentially mirroring each other which is very well done on the part of the uh, the fight choreography. There's some very good fight choreography in this in general. There's some a lot of fast cuts, but I think during the more climactic scenes, those fast cuts do actually help. Um, f- for example, there's one fast cut where a widow knees Natasha in the face in like a sort of slide while Natasha's already on the floor. And that's a single cut. Now, what that cut does is it puts the focus on the attacking Widow. Which I think is done well. In that we just see that attack. Um, And then it cuts to a different shot as Natasha's attacked again. Um, Yeah, it's better than a lot of quick cuts that you get in some other fight scenes for example the new Mortal Kombat movie has a lot of very unnecessary cuts in certain sequences but I don't think the cuts in Black Widow are necessarily detrimental they're not wasted in the same way as some of the cuts in in Mortal Kombat for example and the fight choreography is well done enough that it becomes enough of a spectacle that you kind of ignore the jump cuts. So, I don't mind it too much. I do think the introduction of the Red Room is maybe... You know, they're too powerful, and I think... Unless that goes anywhere in the future, I'm not sure why. I mean, besides to give... Natasha and her family something to fight but I don't know I think how well Black Widow is going to sit overall in the MCU depends on what's done with the characters later on as it is it's the first real attempt at a prequel in the MCU I think maybe it was too little too late I think it should have come out earlier but you know, it's a competently made Marvel film. Marvel don't make bad films. Even the worst films in the Marvel canon, the the, the Marvel Studios output, um, which I would say are probably Thor The Dark World, Incredible Hulk, and Iron Man 2, they're all still perfectly watchable. And still better than a lot of other action films, and a lot of other comic book films in general. So, Yeah, I don't think Marvel can make a bad film and Black Widow definitely isn't a bad film but it's nothing spectacular either. It's no- I don't think it will be many people's favourite film in the franchise but it's not a bad film. It's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, hopefully we'll see more of Yelena and Alexei. Hopefully Alexei. Um, possibly Melina as well, possibly more of the Black Widows. Possibly more Taskmaster, but yeah, I don't think it was terrible. Now then, Loki. Now, first I'm just going to talk about the first five episodes. So no spoilers for this week's episode yet. I will warn you when there are. If you're on uh, one of the apps where you can see the segments that I divide this episode to, the spoilers for the finale will be in their own segment. So, Loki as a series is picks up on the variant of Loki from the time heist in Avengers Endgame. Now, this particular Loki um, ends up grabbing the Tesseract and disappearing with it shortly after the events of Avengers um, due to errors made in the time heist. Now, that becomes like a mild setback for the Avengers on the time heist, uh, which they soon correct by going further back and taking the Tesseract from there. But what happened to that Loki was never really explained. Here, we find out. He's taken by a group known as the Time Variance Authority, whose, whose goal it is to monitor the timeline. We find out that... There was once a multiverse, and the multiverse went to war. As a result of this multiversal war, a group called the Timekeepers um, solidified the multiverse into one singular sacred timeline. And the Time Variance Authority's job is to monitor that sacred timeline for variance and to remove them from the equation if necessary, and to reset the timeline when it gets off track. So essentially that's what they do with uh, Loki. Um, Loki is then given to an uh, operative called Mobius. Mobius is played by Owen Wilson. He does a fantastic job. Um, Very, very funny, (laughs) as one would expect. Uh, Owen Wilson's not one I'm, I'm usually a fan of, but I thought he did a, a brilliant role as Mobius. Um, now, Mobius has been hunting a very vari- another variant of Loki that has been attacking agents of the TPA throughout the timeline. So he decides to enlist the help of our Loki. Well, the 2012 Loki. In doing so... Loki is humbled when Mobius shows him his canon history in the prime time in the sacred timeline like what actually happens to Loki in the same sacred timeline we see um how his actions lead to the deaths of the death of Frigga in Thor the Dark World and the effect that has on Loki um we see his how he is killed by Thanos and the effect that has on Thor well to a certain extent we see Thor's immediate grief at Loki's demise shortly before the uh, the ship is destroyed and yeah it's it's an emotional moment and A lot of this is done through exposition. Uh, Loki is very, very exposition heavy, but I think it needs to be because it's a lot of very high concept science fiction elements that most general audiences don't have a frame of reference for. Um, You can sort of see this by how many fans can still be confused by Avengers' Endgame's time travel. Um. And I think the way they they did it in Avengers Endgame by explaining it sort of through pop culture references and films was the way to do it. Um, And explaining that, no, the time travel here is different to the time travel that you've seen before. So Loki does a similar thing where there's a lot of explanation, a lot of exposition. But I do think that works because... The exposition is generally given by very charismatic characters. in And in this first episode as well, a lot of it is illustrated to us through clips of the Loki that we've been following for the past 10 years, the prime timeline Loki. You know, we see him turning up to save the Asgardians. We see him, you know being told by Odin that he loves him and that he's his son. We see him fighting Thanos and how that leads to his death. Yeah. And it leads to this version of Loki almost immediately losing his arrogance, becoming more humble, realizing realizing sort of what he's what he's done to people how many people he's hurt and that he doesn't like it he doesn't like hurting people but he needs to hurt people because he's weak and it's how he avoids being seen as weak is by hurting the people that he can hurt yeah it's very good it's very character focused and again character focus is Something the MCU does very, very well. Now, it leads to an ongoing mystery. Um, Firstly, the mystery is this variant Loki, who we learn is a woman, and she has taken the name Sylvie. Um, We learn that Sylvie was taken by the TVA when she was a child. Um, And she has been on the run from them pretty much ever since. She's been hiding in Apocalypsis because while she's in an apocalypse, she can't affect the sacred timeline because everyone in an Apocalypse will die. So she can't branch the timeline to risk the multiverse returning, which is the whole reason the TVA monitor the timeline. Any branches can lead to a new multiverse. Um... Sylvie and Loki end up trapped on a planet together in a particular apocalypse Um, while they're there a moment between them um, leads almost to a nexus event which is um, a new branch on the timeline now that shouldn't happen from an apocalypse and it's because of the connection between these two characters um, between Loki and Sylvie and yeah it's something that shouldn't happen and it suggests almost like a love story between the two which some people seem to have responded negatively to because they are essentially the same person um I don't necessarily choose to see it that way I choose to see it as sort of like you know there's a respect and a love certainly but not a not a romantic love a you know a belief and a faith in each other that Loki has never really had before. If you look at Loki's history in the MCU he's not really experienced love you know the we see the events in, in, the, epi- in the first episode where we see canon Loki's life we see the things that Thor says to him in Ragnarok that Odin says to him that Frigga says to him yeah, Loki has struggled. He's turned people away for a lot of his life. So, for Loki and Sylvie to have someone else that believes in them, that trusts them, that is close to them, that values them, I think that is very, very powerful. Um. So, yeah, there's some. It, it's a good story. Um, and the connection between the two characters is what drives the plot forward, um, especially through those two episodes. However, there's more to the mystery. Um, For example, Sylvie is able to enchant uh, people. Her powers work differently. She's not uh, a trickster, an illusionist, to the same level of um, Loki with his magic. Hers is more enchantment. Um, It's a slight adaptation of a character from the comics called the Enchantress, but I think but making her a Loki was a much better idea. Um, Now, we learn through Sylvie and the people she's enchanted that the TVA are in fact all variants. They are people who used to have lives on the Sacred Timeline and they were removed from it. Um the apparent head of the TVA underneath the Timekeepers, uh Ravonna Renslayer, uh Judge Judge Ravona. Um she is she tries to stop that information from being widely available. It seems she eliminated one of Sylvie's victims. Um who became aware of this fact. And by the end of episode four, there is a confrontation with the timekeepers. One of the allies that Sylvie has made through enchanting them, Hunter B-15, who is now aware of their life on the the timeline. Uh, She helps Sylvie and Loki and in a confrontation against the timekeepers. And what happens then is... Sylvie... Attacks the timekeepers, and we learn that the timekeepers are in fact robots. So there is someone behind them. Then Loki is pruned. Now, pruning is what the TVA do to variants, it essentially eliminates them from the timeline. And this is where we get the only post credits scene of this entire series. Now, post credits are a thing from Marvel and have been ever since the first Iron Man, usually uses tease to something else the series have made sporadic use of them uh division features one in episode seven one in episode eight and two uh one pre uh, after the main credits and one after the credits total in um episode nine Falcon and the Winter Soldier features two after the mid credits in episodes five and six This particular one at the end of episode four is the only post-credit sequence in Loki. Loki is pruned while talking to Sylvie about their connection on the doomed planet Lamentis. And how that led to a Nexus event. And how Mobius, who had previously been pruned in the episode, thought that might help them bring the TVA down. And that's when he gets pruned. But in being pruned, he wakes up in a place called The Void confronted by other variants of Loki, including a variant in the classic costume played by Richard E. Grant, who is a British actor who is absolutely phenomenal. I don't think he's known very well in the US, but in Britain, he's very, very good. Very good character actor. And he does a brilliant, brilliant job in this. Um, A child variant um, of Loki and a crocodile, uh, alligator variant of Loki, as well as a a couple of others that he encounters in the next episode. It turns out that Loki has been trapped in the Void, and inside the Void is where all the things that are pruned end up, and then a creature called Eliath, a giant cloud monster, eradicates them all from the timeline forever. So the Lokis within the Void have been able to stay like one step ahead. Um, Richard Grant's variant, we learn, um, he survived the confrontation against Thanos by casting an illusion, hid himself from the galaxy for centuries, presumably, on a small planet, but then missed his brother and wanted to return to him, and as soon as he stepped off the planet, he was abducted by the TVA. So, yeah, we see Kid Loki. And how Kid Loki was... Uh, we learn he killed Thor when he was a child. And was then pruned by the TVA. Um, there's another variant of Loki. We never really learn what the alligator did. Um, I kind of wish we had. That would have been nice. Um, I think they said something like he ate a cat. Or or something. Ate something he shouldn't have. Um. So yeah... Uh, And the the Richard E. Grant variant of Loki, we learn, is a very, very powerful illusionist. He ends up creating an illusion of Asgard itself in this episode to tempt Goliath, which is fantastic. And he dies doing it, Um, but it's absolutely fantastic. But in doing it, Sylvie, who has also pruned herself to wind up in the void with Loki... Um, and Mobius, who she sends back to the TVA to bring it down from the inside, uh, help Loki and Sylvie and Loki together are able to enchant eliath, which then provides them with a doorway and a portal to confront the final enemy. And I'll come back to that in a second, because that's the, the finale, the, where they get to whatever is behind the TVA. But the... What this means is that the entire series is an ongoing mystery of who is behind the TVA and why are they doing this and why are Lokis so important. And everything hinges on this final episode. And it's very, very well done. Um, there's a lot of nice Easter eggs all throughout it, especially in the void. There are some fantastic Easter eggs, for example, the Thanos copter, which is uh, a very mock thing from the comics of one episode, one issue of the comics where Thanos turns up in a helicopter and robs a bank. You know, that doesn't fit with the MCU variant of Thanos, but, you know, we find out that there's a, a Thanos copter in the, um, in the void, <laughs> which is great. Um... Now, a lot of Easter eggs and recurring characters throughout the series have implied that a particular character would be behind everything. Um, that particular character being Kang the Conqueror. Kang the Conqueror was announced as being cast in a multi-film deal shortly before Loki aired Um by uh being played by a character uh, by an actor called jonathan majors from lovecraft country uh now kang is one of the few characters in the comics who is a, a primarily an avengers villain as in avengers the team rather than being a villain of various characters within the team um Kang is also a character who was tied up at Fox for a long time due to him being linked to the Fantastic Four um, due to his debut there. Um, There's many different versions of Kang throughout the timeline. Um, Things that lead up to him include uh, Ravonna. Um, Ravonna Renslayer is his bride in the comics as a character called the Terminatrix. Um... He's been linked to the Timekeepers um, through a series called Avengers Forever, where he was actually an opponent of theirs. Um, there's a variant of Stark Tower in the Void, which is labeled Kang Tower, um, or Queng. it's Q E N G, um, who is also a variant of Kang at some point in the timeline. So, obviously, the internet has, and Eliath is also linked to Kang so there was a lot of speculation leading into loki and as it was ongoing that kang would appear at some point and kang would be revealed to be behind the tva um which made sense and i think with the the nature of the tvn the nature of loki as a series the time travel aspect Kang was the character that always made the most sense. But we know with um, characters that make sense in the comics don't always make sense in the MCU, for example, with WandaVision and Mephisto. Um, so, it, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be Kang. It was an interesting theory, but theories aren't always right. But what I liked about Loki, what I've enjoyed most about Loki is the time-travelling aspect, is the, the high concept nature, the mystery, how everything is revealed in small breadcrumbs, how there's a lot of nice moments between characters uh, and guest characters, even guest characters that are only in it for an episode. For example, Rich D. Grant um, as classic Loki do a brilliant, brilliant job. Um, Hunter B-15, she's never given another name. But she has some brilliant moments throughout the series. You know, Ravonna, when she learns what about the TVA being robots, you know, seems shaken. But then at the same time, she says to Hunter B-15, it's like, it has to mean something. You know, it, the TVA, everything, it can't all be for nothing. So she becomes almost an antagonist as a result of being shaken to her core as a character by her beliefs and having them be challenged. It's it's intriguing, and it's a lot of very high-concept stuff. And I think they've done a brilliant job of explaining it and making it very accessible for everyone. And I think that is probably going to be Loki's greatest triumph You don't have to have seen anything else time travel. If you have, if you're a fan of things like Rick and Morty or Doctor Who, then Loki is probably going to resonate even more with you because you're going to be familiar with these sorts of concepts and ideas. But even if you're not, um, you know, you're still going to enjoy it. I think there's a lot to it to enjoy And the the character relationships, the dynamics, and Loki is such an entertaining character in general um, that it's going to be great to see more from him. Loki is, I think it was always rumoured to be getting a Season 2. It was confirmed in the final episode that it is getting a Season 2. That's the only spoiler you're getting in this section, is that Season 2 is coming. Um, So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where Loki goes. And what it does as a series. Um, But yes. Now is where. If you have not seen the final episode. Which debuted this past Wednesday. Now is where. You will be spoiled. If you stay any longer. So. Last chance to get off the ride kids. Um, Yeah. Loki spoilers for the finale. Incoming. So the finale of Loki for all time, always reveals in the Citadel at the end of time, where Loki and Sylvia found themselves, that the person behind the TVA is indeed a variant of the person who would become Kang the Conqueror. Um, What follows is pretty much an episode long exposition sequence where he who remains as he is known reveals everything the origins of the TVA the history of the multiversal war why there's the lie about the timekeepers how he engineered Loki and Sylvie to be there everything and considering it's an hour pretty much an hour of exposition It is phenomenal. And I think the reason it is so good is it is written very, very well in that it's all character-focused. We, you know, the He Who Remains tells us parts of his story. Um, And Loki and Sylvie react to it in character in ways where they're not just prompting for the next part of the story, But they're saying that they don't believe him or they judge him or whatever. And that's phenomenal. Phenomenally done. Um, So, yeah. There was a lot I enjoyed about this. A hell of a lot I enjoyed about this. Um, To me, considering everything was hinging on that final episode, to me it stuck the landing. And I think a large part of that is Jonathan Major's performance as he who remains he is so charismatic in the role um clearly insane um, but also tired and taking a a very bizarre stand of where we reveal that the t v a exists not just because of the danger of the multiverse but because of the danger. Of alternate versions of him. It's because. A variant of him. Was the being that discovered the multiverse. On the 31st century of Earth. In the original timeline. He discovered the multiverse. And you know. Certain variants of him just saw through the multiverse. More worlds to conquer. And so that's what started the multiversal war. He who remains is the character who ended the multiversal war. And the whole point of the sacred timeline is to prevent the branches in the timeline creating more variants of him. Because he is so dangerous. Variants of him are that dangerous that they almost brought everything to an end. And now Loki and Sylvie have the choice to take over for him or kill him and leave everything in chaos. And it leads to a a fight between the two of them, uh, a clash of ideologies. And everything that the series has been building up to, all of their character interactions, are down to this final confrontation where one of them can't trust and the other one cannot be trusted and he who remains ends up dead and the timeline fractures and breaks and the multiverse returns and loki stuck back at the TVA is now faced with a TVA that is run openly by a variant of Kang the Conqueror and Mobius and Hunter B15 do not remember him ravona disappears uh, Ravona is left as a cliffhanger um, and presumably she will return. The variant of Kang um, who is now running the TVA. We know very little about him, but he is in the classic Kang the Conqueror costume. Um, like I said, there's multiple variants of Kang in the comics. There was a council of Kangs, which was hinted at in this final episode. Uh, he Who Remains is very similar to the character of Immortus, but much more compassionate than Immortus ever was. Immortus being a future version of Kang, who decides to guard the timeline after years of conquering. Um, Immortus was, again, a very interesting character, had a very pivotal role in Avengers Forever, um, with a lot of timeline shenanigans against the Timekeepers and Kang. Um... Yeah, it's bizarre how well this works. I don't think it should work as well as it does, but it really, really does. And the implication for the future is that the multiverse exists. And it's so simple. Like, if they hadn't gone through the effort of telling the story of making the multiverse exist... It wouldn't necessarily be a thing. Audiences are quite accepting of multiverses. We've had um, the concept of multiverses explored in other things. Star Trek has done it. Um, the Arrowverse has done it through Council on Inf- uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they've been doing it for years ever since they introduced the concept in Flash season two. Um, uh, you know, Into the Spider Verse did it, and that's a kids' film. That's an animated film um and yeah so i don't think people would have questioned the multiverse if marvel had just introduced it and there's speculation that the speculation multiverse is going to be key to a lot of upcoming projects from um there's rumors that spider-man no way home will feature toby Maguire and andrew garfield's versions of spider-man Um, There are rumours that, um, obviously Doctor Strange 2 is titled The Multiverse of Madness. We know that Kang is coming up in multiple projects. The only one we've confirmed him for, uh, Jonathan Majors as Kang, is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Where he's explicitly been announced as playing Kang the Conqueror. But like I said, there's multiple versions of Kang throughout Marvel Comics, and there's multiple things they could do with him in the films. He Who Remains, as presented in this, is almost a completely new character. He doesn't match any depiction of Kang in the comics, and he's far more entertaining than Kang ever has been in the comics up until now. So, if we get an evil version of that character which matches that level of charisma and uniqueness in his performance, that could be so interesting for the future um, so there's a lot of potential to see where season two of this goes next, and where Kang can reappear next, and if Kang is going, Kang or his variants are going to be the main villains going forward. The The Marvel Universe has always had multiple plots ongoing at the same time. Even in the the Infinity Saga, the main plot that is ongoing is the Infinity Stones. But there are, you know, not, not every film ties directly to the plot of the Infinity Stones. Some films tie more to the plots of the Divided Avengers on Earth. I'd barely mention the Infinity Stones you know, the output of things like Civil War, the uh, collapse of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, without mentioning the Infinity Stones. And that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, we know the multiverse and Kang are probably going to be things going forward. Um, and there's some of the upcoming projects where we can you know we can ascertain yeah they're going to be important plot points you know perhaps secret invasion perhaps that's going to be a multiverse story rather than a scroll story with the fact the scrolls are the good guys in the mcu compared to the villains that they are in the in the comics um you know that's always a potential as well um And this isn't the first time the multiverse has been mentioned in the MCU. The idea of the multiverse was floated in Spider-Man Far From Home. Mysterio, as part of his cover story, said he came from another Earth. And now that turned out to be a lie. But it's a believable lie. And with Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Spider-Man Far From Home both being set after this. You know, in well, I mean. The, the way the multiverse is created now, it's like the multiverse has already always existed. Branches take place on the timeline throughout the timeline. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of potential. And towards the end, we get this fantastic visual where we see branches on branches on branches of this timeline. The multiverse is back in full force. And for Loki to devote so much time to this mystery... Oh, excuse me. Suggests that it is going somewhere. And it'd be interesting to see where it goes. And it's presumably going to go somewhere, judging by Jonathan Major's contract, in multiple films. In multiple different projects. So, you know, Multiverse of Madness is clearly one. You know, we could see potential in Eternals, Thor, Love and Thunder... Um, We know What If is the next series, which is an animated series focusing on alternate worlds um, throughout the multiverse, being observed by The Watcher. So we are getting more exploration of multiverses. What If is also the only other series that I believe is confirmed to be getting a second season um, at some point next year alongside Loki. So those are two shows that are focusing on the multiverse and the timeline, and they're both... Getting second seasons. So, this is clearly something that is going forward. So, that will be interesting to see what happens there. What if it had its uh, proper full trailer release recently? And it was. There's some very incredible ideas between the trailer and the poster. We've got Peter Parker as the Sorcerer Supreme. We've got T'Challa as Star Lord. We've got. Um, Peggy Carter as Captain Britain in World War II. Um, you know, Killmonger and Tony Stark being best friends. So there's some interesting potentials. Whether they're all going to be multiple timelines or a unified timeline, we don't know. But yeah, the potential for all of these things that are currently in animation to maybe make their way back to live action could be, could be done. You know, we could see... You know, we know a lot of the actors are reprising their roles for What If. Could they potentially reprise them again in live action? Could we get Michael B. Jordan back as Killmonger? You know, with the main version of Killmonger dead. But we get this What If version instead. A variant of Killmonger instead. So, yeah. It'd be interesting to see where all this does i do think loki sticks the landing i do think the final episode makes that whole series worth it i think it's a very interesting story that might change depending on where the story goes it could potentially be soured by future projects most most things in the mcu are improved by future projects but there is the potential for this to come off worse in the future depending on how the payoff is used um But no, I think it was very, very well done. And I'm hoping... I'm hoping... That we get some good stuff in the future from it. So yeah. That's my view on the Loki finale. So... I, I definitely recommend it. Okay, so at this point... There are still... I think six... Marvel projects due to be released this year. Um... Of that, I think five of them have had trailers, or at least one trailer, um, by this point. The first one, the next property, is coming in August, um, which is going to be What If, which is an animated anthology series. Uh, at the minute, it's rumoured to be an anthology. Whether it will be connected in any way at all is completely unknown. Um, but yeah, that's exploring the multiverse. Um that one is confirmed to be having a second season as well next year. Um, so presumably in a similar way to Loki, we're getting a second season of that, of what if, um, following that in September is, uh, Shang-Chi and the legend of the 10 rings. Um, the trailers for which have really impressed me. Um, there's a lot going on. A lot of like hidden society stuff. Um, Like, there's some battles involving a lion, um, but, like, a huge giant lion. There's scenes that look like they're set in Madripoor, featuring some kind of underground fight club. Um, One battle of which seems to feature Abomination, who hasn't been seen since the Incredible Hulk film in 2008, and Wong. Um, So I'm intrigued as to why those two characters are going up against each other in Madripoor, of all places. Um... There's rumours that it may be set during the snap as well, which would be very, very interesting during the blip. Um, Whether they'll pay off or not, I don't know, those rumours. Because going back in the timeline is not something Marvel does very often. Um, I'd imagine it'll probably feature some events in that time frame, but not be set completely during that time frame. Um... But yeah, from what we've seen of the new character and the new villain, it does look very, very interesting. The villain is um, a more comic-accurate version of the Mandarin, who is primarily known as an Iron Man villain. Um, But as the MCU quite often do, they've reworked the character. Um, In the comics, I think Shang-Chi's father is a villain, um, but I believe it's a version of the public domain character Fu Manchu. Um, So... The film is presumed is not using Fu Manchu and is instead made Mandarin Shang-Chi's father, which I think is a much more interesting idea. I'm not I'm not sure if Fu Manchu is a public domain character or if it was one that Marvel was licensing at the time. Um, I remember in the 90s when I read some comics with Shang-Chi and he mentioned his father, but never by name. So maybe it's a character they just can't use. So using the Mandarin makes more sense. Um, after that, we're presumably getting a uh, Hawkeye. We know that the Hawkeye series is coming later this year. There's been no real trailer for that yet. um, we know several things about it. We know yelena is going to be appearing now off the back of Black Widow. We know that it's going to introduce a couple of new heroes, including a uh young female character who's going to take Hawkeye's mantle. That's the character of Kate Bishop. Um, she's recently had a push in the Avengers game from Square Enix as well. She's going to be played by Hayley Steinfeld, who I think is very good casting. Um, there's also going to be the character of Echo, who is a deaf character in the comics, uh, more closely associated with Daredevil. So it would be interesting to see her uh, in this as well. She's being played by a deaf actress as well, which is nice. Um then there's going to be miss marvel at some point towards the end of this year as another series this is another one that i don't think has had a second season announced yet but it wouldn't surprise me if it got one miss marvel is a very very popular character she's a really relatively recent character as well she was only introduced in the comics 2015 maybe slightly after that um but she's the pakistani american teenager uh, known as Kamala Khan. She's also had a push in the uh, Avengers game. She's one of the main characters in the story mode. Um, in fact, she replaced Hawkeye as, you know, the sixth member of the uh, the more commonly known Avengers for the game. Um, personally, I think Kamala's a great character. Her series looks like it's going to have a very... Superhero soap opera vibe. There's been a shot released on set of the character in costume. The costume looks fantastic. Um, The actress looks like she's having a whale of a time. Um, So yeah, I'm very excited to see it. Um, And I hope it does really well. We then know Kamala is going to reappear along with Monica Rambeau from WandaVision. And um, Carol Danvers from the first Captain Marvel in the second Captain Marvel film, which is now called The Marvels, and will be releasing late next year. Um, The final, there's two other projects this year. There's a film in November, which is The Eternals. That was originally meant to release last year, uh, late last year, and they've kept it in a late sort of winter slot, um, which means Shang-Chi has been pushed ahead of it. Personally, I'm very, very interested in the Eternals. The comic book Eternals have a very bizarre history, very involved history. Um, I mean, they're very creative, very imaginative. They were used to explain a lot of history um, in the comics and how the universe kind of tied together. The interesting thing here, though, is that the Eternals was pitched to Marvel by Chloe Zhao, who I believe recently won an Academy Award for Nomadland. Um, Now, it's not very often that Marvel is pitched by directors for a project. Usually Marvel have an idea of what they want to make. They find a director that they want to fit that project. But in this case, Chloe Zhao pitched Marvel for The Eternals. The only other... Time I can think of a, of a director giving Marvel a pitch, I think was Taika Waititi with Thor Ragnarok and possibly James Gunn with Guardians of the Galaxy. So it doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it generally is because the act, the director has a good vision in mind for the film. So Chloe Xiao has a very, she's getting a lot of buzz as a, a very talented director. She's clearly got an idea for the story. And it's like, while I don't want to explain too much about the Eternals, because as much, as involved as they are in the comics, the MCU is a very, very different beast, as we've seen discussing things like WandaVision and Loki. How they adapt concepts and characters is quite often very, very different to how they're presented in the comics. So I don't think the Eternals and their associated characters and concepts are going to be transitioned as simply as we expect. But there's a lot of scenes in the trailer showing it taking place over centuries, if not millennia. Um, You know, these characters are very, very long lived. It looks like there's some good action sequences, looks like there's some very good um, emotional sequences... A lot of story, a big ensemble cast. So, yeah, I'm I'm very interest, interested in where it could go and what could be at the centre of it. So far, it's only been a teaser trailer, but it's enough that it's got me very interested. It's Like I said, it's not out till November, um, but I'm very, very much looking forward to it. The final film this year is the next Spider-Man film, which there are plenty of rumours about, especially concerning the idea that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire might return as Spider-Man, and we might see like, almost like a live-action Spider-Verse film, which so far everyone keeps denying, but there's also plenty of rumours and reports that line up and say that certain actors are in certain places filming and they've been spotted in certain places, so corroborates that idea. Um... There's been no trailer for it yet. I was thinking there might be one at some point uh this week due to the finale of Loki. I thought this weekend might be the perfect time for it to appear. Um but so far it hasn't. Um whether it will or not I have no idea. Um but beyond that there's some some very interesting stuff coming um, for the rest of phase four as well. Um, just for what we know so far, um, we know that next year we're looking at a She-Hulk TV series, a Moon Knight TV series, a secret invasion TV series. Um, like I said, in the comics, that's a story in line involving scrolls replacing superheroes. Um, and we know that Ben Mendelssohn's character of Talos and Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury. Both of whom have a connection to the Skulls Scrolls obviously are going to be involved. Um I think Amelia Clark has joined the cast as well recently. Um but beyond that we don't know much about the plot, because the scrolls obviously work in a very, very different way in the MCU. So there's the potential for anything. I speculated on one idea um earlier when talking about the Loki spoilers. Um, There's also going to be an Ironheart TV series um, which is going to follow uh, a young successor to Iron Man's Legacy uh, named uh, Riri Williams. Uh, There's also going to be an Armor Wars series which I think is due to start filming later this year um, featuring Don Cheadle um, as War Machine. An I Am Groot series. I'm not sure if that's a live action or an animated one. And also Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. Um, over christmas next year presumably as well we'll also be getting the second season of what if next year possibly the second season of loki or maybe that will be um 2023 i'm not entirely sure yet um i mean that's a lot of series planned for next year so there's also like four films planned for next year as well i think there's doctor strange in the multiverse of madness uh thor love and thunder Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and the Marvels. And I think there was also talk of a Wakanda-based series as well. So whether that will lead into Wakanda Forever or will pick up after Wakanda Forever, I don't know. Um, Obviously, Wakanda Forever has been hit with the untimely death of Chadwick Boseman, but Marvel have confirmed that they're not recasting the character of T'Challa suggesting that Charla will be retired or laid to rest out of respect for Chadwick Boseman. That's a a contentious idea, but I do think Chadwick Boseman gave a lot to the portrayal of that character. And I also do quite like the idea of retiring a character unexpectedly. Uh, It shows... You can then echo in the universe sort of the effect that Chadwick Boseman's death had on the fans. You know, have it be sudden, have him die of cancer in the same way that the actor did. It's, I think it would mean more that way. Um, and then obviously in 2023, we're getting some more series, we're getting uh, some more films, sorry, we're getting Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, um, The Blade film, Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and Fantastic Four. Um, all of which are quite far off and we know very, very little details about. But there's going to be extra series coming as well, presumably. Like I said, if some of these series get a season two, um, so far only Loki and What If are confirmed, but I can easily see Miss Marvel getting a second season and probably She-Hulk as well, to be honest. So, and possibly Ironheart. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens down the line. Um... We know the deal with Spider-Man and Sony has changed so that Spider-Man will appear in another main universe film somewhere. The obvious one for me would be Fantastic Four, but with it being a couple of years down the line, I'm not sure if he'll be appearing in, say, Multiverse of Madness or Thor, Love and Thunder first. Um, Wherever he appears, presumably, he'd have to have a a sensible enough role for the the Sony deal. So we'll see. Um, The Sony deal could also lead to uh, be extended and include a Spider Man 4. Sony are doing their own films as well. There's the second Venom film coming and the uh, Morbius film at some point. So, if those connect to their own universe of characters, and if they do, if No Way Home is Spider Verse focused, there could be some connection between the two further down the line. Um, there's also obviously the Spider Verse animated sequel at some point. So, there's a lot of intrigue there about what that could all mean for the characters. Because Sony very clearly wants to do some things, and Marvel very clearly want to do some other things. So, that's going to be interesting down the line as well. But, I'm excited for a lot of this. There's a lot of stuff planned. Um, all of it's being done more centrally and more focused than what we've had in the past. Um... And obviously being done with a much bigger budget. I mean, as much as I loved series like Daredevil and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they didn't always have the biggest budget, and sometimes it showed. Um, whereas WandaVision, Loki, and the rest are easily on the same quality as the films. And it's it's not even comparable. Just how different the quality is. They feel like the films do. So, we'll see how that goes. Personally, I'm excited. I think there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to. I'm very, very interested in some of it. I'm obviously interested in the meta-narrative, but certain projects I am just looking forward to because of the projects. Like, I'm excited for Eternals, yes, to how it connects and what it means for the rest of the Marvel Universe, but I'm also just excited for Eternals. The first season of Loki has me very interested in the second one, especially with the news earlier today that the, um, the producer, one of the, one of the producers, no, one of the directors, sorry, for season one is not returning for season two. So, I mean, that's a bold choice and I'm not sure if that will hurt season two going forward. Um, we know we're getting a captain america 4 at some point presumably within phase 4 so it'd be interesting to see when that materializes and i'm excited for that as a result of falcon and the winter soldier um i'm very excited for she-hulk i think that's going to be amazing and i'm very excited for miss marvel some i'm a bit more dubious about um hawkeye i think could be very interesting but Hawkeye's not necessarily my favourite Avenger in the MCU, excuse me. I quite like the comic version that they're basing this series off. Um the run by Matt Fraction and David Arger, but we'll see how connected it is and how much of that makes it to the screen. But either way for me, phase four's shaping up pretty well. Um I've I've enjoyed the project so far uh some more than others (laughs) but i have enjoyed them all i think the the move to the series streaming on disney plus i think is very very good i think it's a good move for the future of the mcu so yeah i'm i'm interested with the quality of all this stuff so yeah let's look forward to it let's see what's going to happen Thank you for listening to this episode and listening to me ramble. Um, if you have any thoughts, any opinions you want to share on what, how you think Phase 4 is holding up, then please get in touch with me. I'm at GardoHedgehog on Twitter. Um, Gardo on Instagram. Um, that's mainly one I use for my paintings. Or at Gardo on Reddit. Um, so you can find me please get in touch with me drop me a message let me know what you think of the podcast let me know maybe topics you'd like me to discuss in the future um or yeah just talk about marvel i know that um, this is my second big video big video big audio on the mcu um but the first one was clearly popular I, I saw the numbers i saw how many of you were listening to it part of it might be because it was a very long one and you broke it up into stages but it was definitely one of the uh, episodes that seemed to do better so yes uh, after i think i don't think i'll be touching the mcu again maybe until next year though um after we've had the projects that i've spoken about recently as the upcoming ones um but we've got plenty of other stuff to talk about in the meantime our next episode which is coming in two weeks time on the 31st of july is going to be discussing um the value of shows created to sell toys so think of your transformers your he-man your teenage mutant ninja turtles your power rangers And is there value in those shows beyond selling toys? That's what we're going to discuss next time. I'm very much looking forward to it. I hope you are too. In the meantime, please look after yourselves, be safe, wear your masks if out, get your vaccines if you have the chance to. And please, most especially of all, take it from someone struggling with their own, look after your mental health, Talk to people if you need help, if you're struggling. Take medication if you need it. Take time off work if you need it. Please, please reach out if you need to. I love you all and value every single one of you. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you next time on the 31st of July in our next episode.